This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is a CBS News special report. America is back to work. The State of the Union. We have the tools to save lives and to keep businesses open and keep schools open, keep workers on the job and sustain this historic economic comeback. President Biden addresses a joint session of Congress with his plans for addressing the biggest issues facing the American people at home and abroad. Putin chose this war and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Here's correspondent Steve Kathan. And a pleasant good evening. It's a tradition as old as the Republic. For President Joe Biden, a very big night. His first State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress and the American people. It comes in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic that has been deadly. And with the U.S. economy facing new challenges and a major foreign policy crisis right at his feet, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Also, the president in the weeks ahead will try to guide the first black woman Supreme Court nominee through the confirmation process. And politically, the nation is pointing toward the midterm elections in the fall, the fight for control of the Senate and the House. We'll talk to CBS News correspondents and analysts throughout the night on some of these issues and more. White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy is along with us tonight uh, with more on what the president's going to say. Hi, Stephen. Hey, good evening, Steve. The president's going to begin by talking about what those who'll be tuned in tonight tell us is their top concern. Interest in the Ukraine crisis has very suddenly topped the economy, it's topped inflation, and it's topped the pandemic as the major focus. Excerpts provided by the White House tonight have Mr. Biden calling Putin's war premeditated and unprovoked. The president, according to these excerpts, will say that history is taught that when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. A new price is being applied tonight. As CBS's Nancy Cordes reports, the president will announce that the U.S. is closing its airspace to Russian aircraft. Scheduled flights from Moscow to New York's JFK airport, for example, were already being canceled in advance of that news. And it follows what most European countries have already done. The president tonight will stress how the U.S. and its allies have been united in their response to the Russian invasion, saying that Putin thought 
he could divide the West. The president will say, quote, Putin was wrong. We were ready. State of the Union addresses, of course, have offered modern presidents the chance to captivate the listening audience. Uh, The the speech uh, full of inspirational rhetoric and a list of policy proposals. Stakes have been high for presidents before Joe Biden, but he faces significant headwinds tonight. Inflation, a stalled agenda on Capitol Hill, and now a historic global crisis. Our polls indicate the president's detractors believe he's not up to the job he faces. And the polls also show that his supporters feel he's not delivering on what he promised. Steve? We expect to hear a lot about the economy tonight from Mr. Biden. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger, what is the state of the U.S. economy? Well, you know, when you look at the big picture, the economy really bounced back in a huge way last year. The GDP, gross domestic product, expanded by 5.7 percent. It's an enormous uh, gain that we saw. But, of course, it comes after we saw the economy shrink in 2020 because of COVID. We had a 3.4 percent contraction the year before. But, you know, look, the economy really came back very strong after COVID. The unemployment rate is now at about 4 percent. We'll get another report later this week. A lot of people have gotten jobs. But, of course, the one big thorn in the side of the U.S. economy and the global economy is that inflation remains at 40-year highs. We saw the Consumer Price Index come in at a 7.5% pace. Again, the hottest level of inflation in 40 years. And it is going to be a real important part of the Fed's decision-making when it meets in two weeks. Well, overseas, there is a refugee crisis the president will talk about tonight because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our Steve Futterman is talking to Ukrainians who've made it to Poland. Those wanting to leave Ukraine continue the steady exodus. It is going on 24 hours a day. This 19-year-old from Morocco was in Ukraine studying to be a doctor. His story is both harrowing and tragic. It's 50 kilometers with your feet. Like, did you walk? Yes, 50 kilometers. How did you do that? You need to be with a group of people. My friend was alone and he's dead now. This young mother traveled with her daughter from Kiev. Even though she made it here... There is total sadness in her face. It's like a bad dream. Bad dream. On this side of the border, it's for the most part orderly. But on the other side, it's often a much different story as desperation drives people to do everything they can to get out. Our political analyst Leonard Steinhorn from American University in Washington is here, too. I would think the underlying thing tonight is the president will try to make this about American unity. Well, it's American unity, um, but he's going to start off overseas with Ukraine because what he's going to talk about is an assault on democracy by a dictator who wants to impose his messianic vision on all of us. He's going to tell us that we were prepared. He's going to say our alliance was strong, but he then has to say when democracy is threatened, it jolts people everywhere into realizing how important it is and what can be lost. And he's then likely to pull this thread throughout the fabric of his speech because he's going to apply it to American society and American democracy and how we need to restore confidence and faith in our own democratic systems. And to do that, you've got to be able to make people believe that Washington can work and get things done and that democracy is working for them. So he's going to lay out an agenda and challenge the Congress, Republicans and Democrats, to pass something on behalf of the American people so that our own democracy has the full confidence of the people. 
And Lenny also here with us is retired CBS News White House correspondent Peter Mayer. He's covered so many State of the Union speeches, I guess dating back to the late 1970s. Much anticipation for this one, Peter. Right, Steve. Uh, in fact, I've covered, this will be the eighth president's uh, State of the Union speech uh, that I've covered, and it, it really is not an overstatement tonight to say that this is a, a transformative moment for President Biden, for the nation and the world, all on edge, of course, because of the crisis in Ukraine. And I think more than any recent president uh, in modern times, he's going to be speaking to the world as much as he is the U.S. when he focuses on the Russian war on Ukraine, as uh, Stephen Portnoy has reported uh, from the very start of this speech. Now, you know that uh, past presidents have pronounced the State of the Union as strong and other optimistic terms, as strong and sound. And Mr. Biden, of course, is going to find his own positive take. You know, in a, in a recent New York Times opinion a piece. The uh, former top Obama advisor, David Axelrod, suggested that Mr. Biden should assess the State of the Union as stressed. I doubt that uh, the president is going to take that suggestion, but Steve, it, it sure makes sense on a night like this, on this uh, trying time. Stressed but strong, perhaps, Peter Mayer, is what he'll say. We've got plenty more coming up. We'll delve deeper into the Ukraine crisis, the Russian invasion, It's going to help define the Biden presidency, what troops are doing in Europe now. American forces have been sent overseas to help NATO countries. Of course, Americans listening to the speech will want to know that they are not in any danger. With us now is CBS News military analyst Jeff McCausland. He's a retired Army colonel, and we expect President Biden to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Western response to it. Jeff, take us through these early days of Russia's military action. Well, the early days of this action have been stunning in so many ways, Steve. You know, I think it shows two assumptions that Vladimir Putin made at the onset would have proven to be totally untrue. The first assumption is he would move swiftly into the Ukraine. There would be very little fighting, as he saw in 2014, and his military would be successful almost without firing a shot. Clearly, that has been untrue. And the Ukrainian military and civilians have reacted in a much more fierce fashion than he ever imagined. His second assumption was, I believe, that NATO would shatter. There would not be unity of response economically, politically or militarily. That also has shown itself to be untrue. And we see this very cohesive response by the alliance and things changing in a remarkable fashion, ending 30 years of some of the foreign policy objectives that many NATO partners had, had, had embraced. Most notably, of course, the Germans now announcing permanent increases in defense spending in response to this particular uh, Putin's war. Now, unfortunately, I think the Russians will realize they have failed to achieve surprise. They're not getting speed in the advance, two tenets of Russian military doctrine. So now they'll go on to mass, more artillery, more rockets, more missiles, perhaps escalate to thermobaric weapons. More forces, as we see massed, moving towards Kiev. Vladimir Putin is frustrated. He is not getting the victory that he thought he would get quickly. And as a consequence, not only does he worry now that the threat that Ukraine poses to him of being a successful democracy and market economy, but that, he, that Ukraine will actually humiliate him. And how will he respond to that? Now, for the president, he's had to send U.S. troops overseas, more of them, to help NATO nations. What's their job right now? Really three, Steve. First of all, is to deter any notion 
in Putin's mind that he might move beyond the borders of the Ukraine were he successful and actually threaten or, or enter NATO territory. The Baltic republics being a classic example, as they were part of the Soviet Union at one time, or Poland, Romania, those countries of NATO that actually border the Russian Federation. The second is to reassure, reassure our allies that the United States and the alliance as a whole stands behind its Article 5 commitments. And we have to be honest that the credibility the United States suffered during the Trump administration, when then-President Trump talked about withdrawing from NATO, not supporting those obligations, and was further afraid by the rather chaotic withdrawal the United States made from Afghanistan under the Biden administration. And then thirdly, to assist. We know right now somewhere near 700,000 refugees have flowed into NATO countries. We may see that number going to three or even five million. So our forces in those countries along the eastern border of the Russian Federation will be there, I think, to assist in humanitarian operations that's growing by the day. It'll be interesting, Jeff, to see if the president touches on Afghanistan in any way. What's the situation there now? Situation in Afghanistan remains disastrous from a humanitarian standpoint. A country now of 30 million people and maybe two-thirds of that particular population is facing starvation or at least shortages of food. Uh, The Taliban, I think, has discovered that winning a war may be far easier than governing a country. And whether or not that will they can pull that together in the coming days and weeks and how the United States responds in terms of humanitarian assistance. Are we able to do that is a question on many people's minds. Jeff McCausland, thanks very much. Live coverage from CBS News. President Biden's first State of the Union speech is coming up. Correspondent Cammie McCormick is joining us now. She has covered wars for us in Iraq and Afghanistan. She's reported from Moscow over the years, too. So, Cammie, a lot, so much has happened in the last few days to grab the world's attention in Ukraine. Yeah, not just to the um, the U.S. sort of getting its allies together to decide how to handle this as far as getting troops into the the region and getting equipment into Ukraine. We learned this morning from the Pentagon that the U.S. has provided security assistance to Ukraine within just the past 24 hours. If you think about the situation in Ukraine with the air transport, the, the airspace being shut down, the borders being clogged by refugees trying to get out, the, the Russian military action pretty much on the the eastern side of the Ukrainian country, um, it's it's impressive to think of that the U.S. and its allies are still getting security assistance into that country somehow. Um, we're expecting to hear that the U.S. is now expected to provide Ukraine with anti-aircraft missiles. This is huge because we've seen much of the Russian military activity coming from the skies. The Russians were told by senior defense officials don't own the skies at this moment, but it is a give and take between the Russians and the Ukrainian military. So so these missiles will be key to the Ukrainians, as well as the Javelin missiles, which the U.S. has provided to the Ukrainians, which are anti-tank missiles, Steve. Cammie, what about Ukraine's call for a no-fly zone? Certainly the West is not ready for that. The United States does not seem ready for that. But uh, the Ukrainians seem to think this is going to be necessary. 
Yeah, and apparently this came up today in a conversation between Ukrainian President Zelensky and you, uh, President Biden. The the no-fly zone comes up often when we hear, when we see conflicts erupting around the world. But in this particular case, as in many cases, um, it's it's not very attractive to the U.S. And it could actually pull the U.S. further into this situation, which is not an ideal situation to be in. The U.S. has said, said for, for a very long time that it does not want to face off with Russia. That's why U.S. troops aren't going into Ukraine. They're going into NATO countries under an obligation that they have to protect NATO allies. So that's not something that would work in favor of the Biden administration for sure. And aside from the air war that we're seeing and uh, all this coming from the skies and damaging perhaps a lot of civilian areas, as Ukraine claims, Reports from the ground of the Russian military, Cami, running out of fuel and food, some units even giving up, according to some accounts, because the situation is just not good there. Yes, and apparently that has stalled the advance on Kiev. Worrying, though, is that it could also be causing the Russians to use some other tactics, and we've seen uh, reports of suspected cluster bombs, things like that, going after civilian targets, basically bombing areas more indiscriminately than we had seen in the early days. And this may be, according to senior defense officials, because of of the frustration on the part of of the Russians that things are not going as well as they had planned. Cammy McCormick, thanks very much. We're going to talk more about the economic issues this country faces with Jill Schlesinger coming up. And with Leonard Steinhorn, our political analyst, so much has changed during the pandemic with the United States economy. The employment situation, a little bit out of kilter with uh, people willing to hire again, but the workers just aren't there. We'll hear President Biden momentarily with the State of the Union speech, and the economy will be a primary focus. This is a CBS News special report, the State of the Union. You're listening to live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union speech, which is coming up just after the top of the hour. Joining us is CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Jill, how do you think the president will characterize the state of the American economy? Well, I think the president is going to focus on the gains that have occurred after the COVID virus infected not just human beings, but also the overall economy. You have to remember when you go back in time two years ago, we were at the beginning of this and it looked like we were about to have a cataclysmic long recession. Now, the recession was quite deep, but we recovered very quickly. And I think the president is going to talk about how the economy's back on its feet, that the labor market is hot, that people are getting wage gains. And I think those are all really important parts of the story. But he's also going to have to acknowledge that inflation remains high. He may say, well, it's the supply chain and that's going to get worked out. But obviously, this conflict with Russia invading Ukraine only adds to inflationary pressure. So I expect he's going to have to talk about that. That's the elephant in the room. And Jill, the Ukraine invasion puts a lot of pressure on the energy sector. How likely is it that gas prices are going to go even higher? Well, look, it depends on how long the crisis continues. Uh, But I think that we ought to be prepared as consumers to be having the high price at the pump stay with us longer than expected. We really have to watch to see whether oil prices simmer down if these tensions start to simmer down. That would be ideal for consumers. Otherwise, we are going to be facing higher prices, maybe 
somewhere between another 10 to 40 cents a gallon, potentially, depending on the price of oil. And the labor market you touched on a little bit when the pandemic hit, millions of people lost their jobs. Then things got better and people started hiring again, but the workers weren't there. This situation still exists to some degree. Is it ever going to balance out again? Oh, it, it is. Um, I think that when you consider that we had uh, a, an unemployment rate of 14.7 percent in April of 2020, we had you know more than 20 million people out of work. And in this time, it was fortunate that we had government support of people, that no one was struggling, that we did have pandemic relief and stimulus and additional unemployment benefits. And that did cause a lot of dislocation in the labor market. It may not be that so many people are just quitting, but there is certainly a a reshuffling in the labor market. And there is going to be a period here as the economy more fully reopens that I think things should balance out. But right now, if you're a worker and you're looking for a job, there are a lot of jobs out there. It doesn't mean it's the right job for you, but there are a lot of jobs out there. And if you're an employer, you have to pay up because workers are demanding that you at least pay enough so that they can absorb these higher inflationary prices. And along with inflation, people are concerned that interest rates on credit cards, maybe mortgages might inch up. Well, listen, the Federal Reserve, which is what I thought the story of 2022 would be, it's now been supplanted by Russia and Ukraine. The Federal Reserve has a lot of power in this. The central bank meets in a couple of weeks, and at that meeting in March, it is likely the central bank will raise interest rates by a quarter of 1%. This will be the first of a series of rate increases after the Fed slashed interest rates and poured money into the economy in order to make sure that during COVID, we had a functioning financial system. Now, as that starts to retreat, as we start to normalize interest rates, you're right. There are going to be some people who struggle with that. There are going to be people who have outstanding loans, and those loans are going to rise. The cost of those loans are going to rise. We have millions of Americans who have borrowed for student loans. They're going to have to start paying those bills come a month or two. We have a lot of people, though, who are savers, and they are just dying for those interest rates to go higher. They can't wait for the Fed to actually raise interest rates so they can basically sweep up a few pennies of interest in their checking and savings and CD rates. All right, Jill Schlesinger, thanks very much. Our political analyst, Leonard Steinhorn, is with us now. Lenny, how should the president frame what he says about the economy tonight? Well, look, uh, he's got a challenge, and his challenge is basically what Jill said, which is that people are worried about the price of gas. They're worried about the cost of putting food on the table. So even if all the numbers and all the statistics say that, look, we're doing better, we're making our way out of this uh, this terrible once-in-a-century pandemic, um, we are actually sort of getting back to a state of normalcy in our lives. It doesn't matter when people are paying five bucks a gallon for gas and they're walking through the grocery store saying, wow, that's expensive. How much did I pay for it last year? How much am I paying for it this year? So the president has to be able to show that he understands and connects with the real daily concerns of the American people. And he has to project a sense of resolve, determination and progress that because of his administration, 
that has helped us get through this bad phase over this last year, that he's going to help us continue with the progress and help us get out of it. He has to project a sense of optimism, a sense of purpose, a sense of a nation on the move, that we can't be stagnant. And he has to be able to promise to the American people that he's going to do everything he can to rectify their concerns and the situation that we're in. Every president tries to unify the nation with the State of the Union speech, Lenny, but at its core, it's a political speech. And he's got a Democratic Party who wants to win in November. All important midterm elections are coming up. This is kind of a launching pad toward that. Well, yes. And look, uh, for, for the Biden administration, this is about resetting the button on his presidency and for the Democratic Party. Um, uh, you know, you want to be able to push that reset button and say, look, you know, we are not this sort of reactive, weak and feckless White House that everyone's portraying us to be. We are a White House and a party that embodies the resolve, the determination, the spirit of the American people to get things done. But the Republicans are looking at all of these poll numbers, these unfavorable numbers for Joe Biden, and looking at it like they're hungry men at a buffet table because they're seeing all of this stuff and they're going to be able to say, no, there's inflation. It's because of Joe Biden. Um, There's chaos uh, around the world. It's because of Joe Biden. Uh, Afghanistan because of Joe Biden. Supply chain problems because of Joe Biden. So, the, you know, even though many of these things came about because of COVID and the disruption we felt for two years, um, and in, lar- in large part, not Joe Biden, the bottom line is if you're the party out of party, uh, the party out of power, you point the finger at the man in charge, and that's how you score political points. Lenny Steinhorn, thanks very much. We're going to head overseas after this next break to Moscow and to Poland. Get the latest there. This is a CBS News special report, the State of the Union. And good evening, I'm Steve Kaith in CBS News. Glad you're with us for our coverage of President Biden's first State of the Union speech. Let's go overseas now. Of course, a lot of the speech will perhaps deal with Ukraine, certainly a large portion of it. The president facing a big foreign policy issue. Let's get the latest from Russia. Our man Felix Light is in Moscow. Felix Let's go over the last few days in that country. Certainly a lot has happened in the early days of the invasion, some opposition in the streets. What's the situation there now? Indeed. Well, you know, we've seen these sanctions introduced by uh, the U.S. and Europe really, really bite home in, in Moscow. We've seen queues at ATMs, real sort of uh, sort of runs, I think, on any sort of bank that, that is rumored to have some foreign currency here as the ruble has really tanked against the dollar. And sort of these will be the issues that uh, that will be animating the Russians, uh, the Russian figures in the Russian government who will be watching Joe Biden tonight. What can they expect in terms of future sanctions? Uh, what uh, sort of future prospects exist for the U.S. government to punish Russia for its uh, its move into Ukraine and what sort of lethal help uh, the U.S. government might extend to the Ukrainian government in the weeks ahead. Because, of course, as we know, the Ukrainians have put up a, real, a really ferocious resistance that I don't think many in Moscow were expecting. Let's talk about that economic pressure. It seems to be coming from everywhere. I mean, every every time you turn around, somebody is announcing something that's designed to punish Russia economically. The pressure is building. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's really taken uh, Moscow by surprise uh, is the introduction of sanctions on the Russian central bank. That's effectively the Russian Federal Reserve. And what that has done is essentially make it very, very difficult for the Russians to support their own uh, currency, the ruble, which has lost about 30% against the dollar recently. And it is likely to re- to, uh, to to lose more. Uh, Russia sort of has had much of its foreign currency reserves essentially rendered uh, useless to it. So we will expect to see that sort of deepen. And if the US can build an ever wider coalition uh, of uh, sort of support for the sanctions, then we could see this decline deepen. We've seen countries like Japan, like South Korea, like Singapore come on board. These were not expected to join the sanctions programs. So I think we're the uh, the Russians will be keen and looking for sort of what the Joe Biden might do to try and get more countries on side with these sanctions. What's the official media been saying there and are most Russians buying it? Well, we have quite an extraordinary campaign of censorship uh, here against sort of reporting honestly on the war. Uh, Russia's sort of media censorship agency has said that words like war, uh, invasion, offensive are, sort of, are not allowed uh, in media reports of the, the conflict. Uh, it must be referred to as, quote, a special operation instead. And what we've seen is a, a real crackdown on any media violating that line. Yesterday, we saw the, Russia's last t- independent TV channel and its last independent radio radio station shut down uh, for violating uh, the code. We don't, uh, when it comes to public opinion, it's hard to gauge, but I think this is certainly not uh, the consensus position among the Russian people. There's a lot of opposition to this war on the street and in the media. Felix Light in Moscow, thanks very much. NATO countries face challenges too, the Russian threat perhaps, but for now, thousands and thousands of refugees from Ukraine are trying to get out of that country as the Russian invasion intensifies. CBS's Steve Futterman is in Poland near the border with Ukraine. Steve, what a chaotic scene. It is, Stephen. It's going on 24 hours a day. It's just past 2.30 in the morning here right now, and the influx of refugees continues. It's not a mass of thousands at a time, but it's a trickle that never stops. You'll see a car full of six people. You'll see a dozen people walking across with their roller bags. You'll see a a bus full of people. This is going on 24 hours a day, and many of the people are going to be very interested when they wake up in the morning to hear what Joe Biden said. Many people realize that the U.S. is not going to go in in full force with soldiers, with air attacks to help the Ukrainians. But they do want at least a verbal sign of support from the president. And I'm sure they're going to get that tonight. It will be interesting, of course, to see what language he uses. Does he draw a virtual line in the sand telling Russia, don't go any further? We'll have to wait and see. What about the effort to feed people there, keep them warm? What's going on in terms of mobilization from people to to help uh, these folks out? It's a remarkable people-to-people system they have here. Uh, They have a number of spots where they take the refugees when they come across sort of a welcoming center. And the people of Poland have responded in mass. You go to these centers, it's quite moving. There are supplies of blankets, food. There are toys for children. It's almost like a, a Christmas volunteer program. People bring supplies they have. They go to these centers. And one of the most remarkable scenes I have witnessed is when people come off these buses 
Gazas, which are jam-packed with the refugees. There are ordinary Polish citizens with small little signs on cardboard saying, I can handle you if you're a, a family of two. You can stay with me. If you're a family of four, I can, I can handle you. If you need a ride, they have the names of cities on these cardboard signs. If you're going to Warsaw or another city, I will drive you there. So it's been quite remarkable how the Polish people on their own have responded. And the government so far is welcoming people. Obviously, if this goes on for weeks and weeks and we see the numbers just get too large for the Polish government, there could be some problems. We've seen refugee issues fall, go south very quickly before. At this moment, though, the refugees are being welcomed with open arms. You've talked to several of them, those who do speak English and and tried to get a sense of, of what's going on with them. Certainly, they have to feel like they're leaving behind a situation that they don't know what will what will come of that, so their homes perhaps, and they have no idea really where they're off to. That's right. And you see that it's a very interesting reaction. When I see them in Medica, which is this small border town, which has suddenly become a dateline around the world, when they come across the border, there's this elation on their faces. They've made it. They've they've been able to leave Ukraine and they've entered Poland. That was their main goal. But within minutes, many of them are just so sad because there's a certain finality to, yes, I've had to leave my country. I've spoken to a number of people. They all say they want to go back. But there's this sadness, even though they're elated, they're in Poland, they're just devastated. They've had to leave their country. And to see this contrasting series of emotions on these faces is just remarkable. I saw one gentleman today, this was maybe the most moving scene I've seen in the last 24 hours. A car comes across, a man runs to the car, scoops up two children from the car. It's his two sons. He's just, uh, you know, doing what every father would do, loving them, kissing them. He is going to relocate them. He said either in Italy or Germany, then he's coming back, going back into Ukraine. He wants to fight. CBS's Steve Futterman in Poland. Thanks very much. This is a CBS News special report, the State of the Union. And I'm Steve Kathan. Glad you're with us tonight as we preview President Biden's State of the Union speech. His first, right now, lawmakers are entering the House chamber, most of them not wearing masks. Saw Mitt Romney there talking to a colleague just uh, a few seconds ago. They're milling about, talking to their friends. Some are wearing masks. few there uh, I see now sitting up in uh, some of the higher upper reaches. With us now is CBS's Dr. David Agus, who has talked to us about masks so many times in the COVID pandemic. And uh, we'll get a state of the pandemic report, I would guess, from the president. How do you assess where things are right now, David? I think we're, we're in a new phase of dealing with the virus and that we're learning to live with the virus rather than panicking in response to the virus. And so what this means is as long as hospitals have beds, we're going to let down the masks. We're going to keep encouraging the vaccination campaigns. We're going to keep following people to understand how long the vaccines live because there will be a regular cadence of boosters because also we have the Pfizer pill as a backdrop if people get sick. So in a sense, we can go on offense and live our life now back to a new normal. At the same time, we are looking very cautiously for a new variant because one probably will happen at some point and there'll be a temporary pause. But I think we're going to deal with it a lot better this time around. And for the president, certainly, David, the government's providing vaccines, the government's providing masks, sending out tests. 
They're handling all these things associated with COVID-19, but they've been able to back off on some of the policies that perhaps get messy and end up in court, and they haven't had to really pursue that avenue. And, you know, for now at least, it doesn't seem like they're going to have to as we head into the spring. Yeah, it got critical for a while as hospitals got filled in L.A. You know, for four weeks, we had no elective procedures, no cancer surgery, no heart surgery. And so going and trying to push aggressively with policies that mandated things like vaccines, mandated masks and others, obviously caused a lot of people's shoulders to go up. Now we can back off a little bit. That doesn't mean that those were the wrong policies. What it means is, is they're not as important that we mandate them at the present time. And I guess since we're at a phase where the Omicron variant seems to be fading away, and as you say, we wait for the next variant, is there anything we should be doing collectively to sort of prepare for that eventuality? I think we have to need to learn with what we did right and wrong over the last two years. You know, one of the fundamental mistakes, I think, is we didn't allow your regular doctor to give the vaccine. We made you go to a pharmacy or a stadium. And people don't necessarily take advice from a pharmacist or the president get a vaccine, but they do have a relationship with their doctor. So I think as we transition here, we have to learn and that we need to build up leadership. To get normative behavior change, you need leadership. And we sorely lack leadership on the health behavior side. And I think we have to build that up. This is not politics. This is science, which really needs to be the new mantra going forward. The president's mantra ever since day one is get vaccinated. He has said it over and over again. The federal government has tried to encourage Americans to get vaccinated. Where do we stand there now? Certainly the demand is much lower. Have we seen pretty much everyone get vaccinated? Talking about adults who will get vaccinated? Yeah, I think, you know, it's certainly been difficult in the United States. And we kind of hit this plateau in the high 60 percent range for the vaccines and in the high 20 percent range for that booster shot. Now we're going to probably in the next four to six weeks have data on children age six months to four years of age. And that's a critical group that has been unprotected historically. And so we can now protect them when those vaccines are out. At the same time, we have to vaccinate the rest of the globe. It matters to us what happens in sub-Saharan Africa, what happens in the Asian countries. Because if the virus spreads there, we can get a new variant that will affect us. Because people get on a plane, it is here. So we have to focus now on the rest of the globe also. Dr. David Akis, thanks very much. Our foreign affairs analyst, Pam Falk, is with us tonight as well. Certainly with the foreign policy crisis in Ukraine expected to be a key part of President Biden's speech, the world community has been busy... Pam, responding to this Russian invasion. Yes, that's absolutely true. President Biden has shown that he is committed to diplomacy. He re-upped ruptured relations with the United Nations. He's working to isolate Russia, targeting Russia's economy without U.S. troops. And he said he is committed to the NATO alliance. You heard a lot of that at the U.N. this week. Now, that said, Ukraine's president made clear that the U.S. support of NATO does not solve his immediate needs of Ukraine as it faces an onslaught 
of Russian military might, but you do see that the unity of the U.S., Europe, and most of the world is succeeding to isolate Russia at the U.N. and around the world. Even usually neutral Switzerland announced at the United Nations General Assembly that it had signed on to freeze accounts and ban travel of Russia's money class, the oligarchs. And President Biden is expected tonight to announce that he is following in the footsteps of European allies and closing U.S. airspace to Russian aircraft. Certainly that's important, and Ukraine is pulling out all the stops. They've been at the U.N., they've been to the E.U. Uh, President Zelensky, in a speech to the E.U., basically asked for membership. So certainly Ukraine is doing all it can to continue this mobilization effort as the invasion drags on. Yes, that's right. And one other thing to look for, President Biden's talk of premeditated and unprovoked attacks on civilian targets and rejection of talks, he is signaling the elements of war crimes. And that sends a message to Putin that he may personally end up in an international criminal trial dock to pay for the attacks. And that's something that may have as much impact on his psyche as as his pocket as the economic sanctions have on his pocketbook. What would be involved in terms of getting a war crimes investigation going? Certainly, Ukraine has claimed that civilian targets have been hit and have been targeted. Yes, that's exactly true. And the premeditated nature of that has the International Criminal Court already announcing that they have started an investigation. And that begins the process. What more can the United States do with the world community, do you think, Pam, in the days ahead? Well, what the United States can do with the international community is continue to call out Russia. At the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, dozens of diplomats, the U.S., U.K., the European Union, all walked out in protest of Russia's military assault during the virtual speech given by Russia's foreign minister, well-known Sergei Lavrov, who was unable to attend in person because of the European Union restrictions imposed on the flights. And at the UN, the U.S. is expelling a Russian intelligence operative who works for the United Nations and 12 Russian diplomats. Pam Falk, thanks very much. This is a CBS News special report, The State of the Union. Our live coverage continues from CBS News. We're just moments from President Biden's State of the Union speech. Let's go to Capitol Hill now, and CBS's Steve Dorsey as lawmakers are filing in. Steve. Yeah, the Senate just arrived into the House chamber moments ago. Uh, And right now, below me, looking over this House chamber, I see a message. That message tonight is Ukraine, primarily support for Ukraine just minutes ago, the uh, Ukraine ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markorova, uh, just arrived into the first lady's box. I'm also seeing right now the second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, arrive into that same box as uh, the first lady welcomes guests, uh, one of the few permitted guests inside this house chamber. On the uh, house chamber floor, I'm looking at uh, what is uh, speckles of yellow and blue with uh, lawmakers wearing bright yellow blazers, um, ties, scarves. Uh, I I watched as uh, small miniature Ukrainian flags were handed out, along with uh, flag stickers. And I saw Senator Joni Ernst wearing a 
a bright blue blazer with what uh, I could tell was a was a sunflower brooch, uh, the the national flower of Ukraine. And obviously there is a, a different vibe in here than than last year. Uh, there is social distancing. Seat-wise, every other seat is occupied, uh, not only on the on the chamber floor, but also up here in the galleries, where just uh, three seats away from me is a placard reserved for a member of the House. No masks, however, uh, or at least uh, very few masks. Mas- masks are optional, uh, and it's a very different scene than, than what we saw last year during the president's uh, address to a joint session of Congress, Steve. Steve Dorsey, we're going to be going to him throughout the night inside the House chamber. Let's go to White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, Ukraine and the economy will dominate tonight, certainly with Ukraine. We've gotten a a bit of what the president is going to say, and we'll make some news tonight. Yeah, excerpts released by the White House have the president talking about the uh, unity that uh, he and uh, his fellow world leaders have led in the Western world in the response with the sanctions. And the sanctions will be uh, essentially expanded tonight with the word from the president, as we understand, uh, Nancy Cortez has reported, that uh, the U.S. will be closing its airspace to Russian aircraft. So you could think of uh, scheduled flights from Moscow to JFK, for example. Those were already being canceled in advance of this news, and it follows what most European countries have already done. So the excerpts that the White House has provided have the president saying that the Allies have been united in response, that Putin thought he could divide the West, but he, that is Putin, was wrong, and we were ready. The unity that uh, Steve Dorsey describes in the House chamber tonight with so many members of Congress, the House and Senate on both sides of the aisle, wearing blue and gold, is part of the unity that the president will talk about tonight. Uh, it rallying the world's democracies uh, in, in defiance of Vladimir Putin's aggression. And all of it is uh, a part of the effort to demonstrate to the country and to the world that the American people stand with the people of Ukraine. Uh, we uh, understand that the designated survivor tonight, the one member of the president's cabinet who will not be in attendance, lest something untoward or unforeseen should happen, God forbid, it's Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce. And, Stephen, we know security is tight. They put up the fencing again around the Capitol. They have. Uh, the fences uh, that, that were uh, put up, and, and you remember seeing them in the aftermath of the January 6th riot at that U.S. Capitol. The fences are about three blocks away from the Capitol, and uh, all of the immediate blocks around the Capitol complex have been closed. But for the most part, uh, things have been relatively, and well, I'd say entirely calm here in the nation's capital today. White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. We turn now to retired CBS News White House correspondent Peter Mayer. We call on him for analysis so many times. Peter, can you recall a speech like this, a State of the Union that comes at such a key time with so much at stake? Look, there have been speeches in times of war, uh, in the Vietnam War. I'm talking, of course, recent years going back to, to World War II. Uh, you, you think about uh, President Reagan during the AIDS crisis. But this is a high-stakes address at a time of the fraught situation in Ukraine, of course, political and economic uncertainty, Steve, on the domestic and international fronts. In the latest CBS News survey that came out today in the poll, uh, 73% said they want to hear what Mr. Biden has to say about Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, you have to know, Steve, that uh, beyond the biggest audience here at home, allies, the other democracies, and foes, especially Moscow and autocracies and and China, they're all going to be listening closely to what the president says about the Russian attack on Ukraine and the broader implications of this crisis. 
And I would think, Peter, he'll try to display strength because a lot of the Republican criticism, whether it's fair or not, is that in regard to Ukraine, he's been weak. Yeah, that that shows up, too, in in some of the polling. And then there's inflation dogging the White House and the president's uh, polling uh, has that to worry uh, Democrats in this midterm election year. That same CBS News poll today found 62 percent disapprove of the president's handling of the economy. That increases to 70 percent disapproval of his response to inflation. And, you know, the White House had said that inflation uh, was a transitory passing situation. I think tonight uh, the president is again going to acknowledge the pain of so many Americans. Uh, you know, he likes to frame his rhetoric in sort of a common man approach, if you will. And because of the Ukraine crisis, he's expected to reframe the message to discuss one of his main themes, uh, the 21st uh, century clash between democracy and autocracies, and which will prevail. And, of course, he will say that democracy will win out. Peter Mayer, thanks. The justices of the Supreme Court have just entered the House chamber. They'll be listening, as will millions of Americans, to President Biden, political analyst Leonard Steinhorn, State of the Union has always been an attempt to get to unity. And, of course, this is a country where political loyalties are very hard right now, very hard to unify the American public on anything. Well, yes, it is. And look, the State of the Union here tonight, Joe Biden's goal is to lift up the American people, get a good bounce from the speech, see a little movement in the polls, and then realize that it takes time to fertilize the ground and to get people thinking more positively about the things that his administration has accomplished and how they are tackling all of the challenges they inherited uh, a, a year and a month ago when he became president. So this is about reframing his presidency getting people to think differently, reshaping the the media narrative and have people talking differently about what he's done. You can already see it to some extent in terms of the praise he's getting with his handling of the Ukraine situation and how he sort of led the allied assault on Russia. He's hoping that that translates to a good speech and a good bounce and a narrative change about his White House and his presidency. Leonard Steinhorn, thanks. The First Lady, Jill Biden, has just entered the House chamber. You're listening to live coverage from CBS News of the State of the Union. This is a CBS News special report. America is back to work. The State of the Union. We have the tools to save lives and keep businesses open and keep schools open, keep workers on the job and sustain this historic economic comeback. President Biden addresses a joint session of Congress with his plans for addressing the biggest issues facing the American people at home and abroad. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Here's correspondent Steve Kathan. And a pleasant good evening for President Joe Biden. A very big night. His first State of the Union address. Let's go to Capitol Hill now. CBS's Steve Dorsey is there. Steve. Well, Steve, the president's cabinet just arrived into the House chamber. Most of them are not wearing masks. Masks are optional this year at the State of the Union. There was mass COVID testing uh, about a day before this event began, and uh, several uh, lawmakers uh, turned out to be positive for COVID, so they won't be here tonight, along with a few members of Congress, uh, Republicans who are protesting those COVID procedures, uh, including Senator Marco Rubio and Congressman Thomas Massey. Uh, 
just a few minutes ago, also, the first lady arrived dressed in purple. She went and hugged her guest. Uh, that's the Ukraine ambassador, Oksana Markarova. Uh, she's there uh, and was just given a miniature Ukrainian flag. That's what we're seeing across the House chamber tonight, Steve. We're seeing uh, these these small flags. We're seeing members of of Congress, of, of the Senate, dressed in, in blue and in gold. Uh, and there are, I should say, there is some, some social distancing going on uh, as well. Because uh, this, this blue and gold is on the chamber floor, but it's also up above. Uh, in the, the galleries overlooking this, because uh, unlike last year when there was a 200-person limit uh, on the uh, the president's address to a joint session of Congress, uh, there is no limit, just no guests for uh, the invited members and senators. Instead, uh, those lawmakers are now filling the uh, balconies, even surrounding the press right now, Steve. Steve, certainly a different atmosphere, as you described last year. Certainly the pandemic was in full swing, a much different House chamber. Absolutely a, a much different House chamber, uh, much uh, looser in terms of compliance. Like I said, there there is a, a social distancing component, but as we saw just, just now, the, the, the president's uh, cabinet uh, entered the House chamber. Some of them were, were hugged. Uh, they did a lot of handshakes. Uh, a much different environment than we've seen uh, in, in previous years under the, the COVID uh, epidemic. But also, outside here, there's, uh, there's a significant security presence, not nearly as, 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 as tight as it had been, but there's still a, a fence surrounding the, the Capitol building. There's a lot of traffic in the uh, mall area throughout downtown Washington. Uh, law enforcement agencies as far away as uh, New York City have sent police officers to help prepare for what could be any protests or alleged trucker convoys that have been talking about visiting the the city uh, online. However, from my perspective, I haven't heard or seen any kind of demonstrations today. Bit of history tonight for the first time at a State of the Union. Two women will be behind the President of the United States, the Vice President, of course, Kamala Harris, and the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Steve Dorsey, you're watching things unfold there. We expect the president to be announced or to enter very soon. Yeah, we expect the president uh, really at any moment to be uh, announced by the House Sergeant-at-Arms to the Speaker. Uh, and, of course, Nancy Pelosi is is presiding right now over this joint session of, of Congress. Uh, this, of course, will, he, will be his first uh, State of the Union address. Last year it was a address to a joint session of Congress, and we've already heard from Stephen Portnoy and uh, from others about what we're expecting to hear, primarily about uh, uh, about Ukraine resistance and, and Russian sanctions, all of which we see playing out right now on the House floor with members uh, signaling their support. Steve. So much at stake, Steve. We've talked about Ukraine and the economy in this speech. Last year, it was coming off the insurrection and the political uncertainty in the country. Absolutely. Uh, This is going to try to be, I imagine, a speech uh, calling for unity. Unity to uh, confront Russia. Unity to support Ukraine. Unity to confront other challenges, including rising gas prices, uh, inflation, uh, the, the rising cost of, of, of food. And very shortly, we expect the president uh, to arrive. Let's listen to the House chamber. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States.
hear the applause as uh, the president makes his way slowly down the center of the chamber to greet the House Speaker. Right now he's shaking hands of, of lawmakers. He's not wearing uh, a mask. As I said earlier, this is optional tonight. Everyone here has been tested uh, for COVID. He's wearing a blue tie, it's a standard blue suit, uh, as he continues to, to make his way down the center of the House to begin his first, first speech, first State of the Union speech as president. As this happens and plays out, let's bring in CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, some key points to look for tonight. The president's first report to Congress on the State of the Union, Steve, would be front-loaded with remarks on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The president will say it was premeditated and unprovoked. Excerpts provided by the White House in advance have Mr. Biden stressing how the Western allies have been united in their response. And tonight, CBS News has learned that response is broader and it will include a ban on Russian commercial flights above American airspace. No more flights for the moment from Moscow to New York, for example. The president will also speak to the economic concerns of Americans by again insisting that his stalled legislative package would lower costs for such things as child care and prescription drugs. On that, the president says, quote, my plan to fight inflation will lower your costs and lower the deficit. Steve? And Joe Biden shaking hands with the justices of the Supreme Court, having a bit of a conversation with Stephen Breyer, who, of course, is retiring. And uh, he, of course, uh, President Biden, will be in the days and weeks ahead helping guide the new nominee to the Supreme Court, Stephen. Well, he will. It's uh, Tangie Brown-Jackson nominated by the president. Uh, and it's a moment in history. The president, uh, we now see another physical demonstration of it, turning to the vice president and the Speaker Members of the House, of handing Congress, them the copy of the, of the prepared remarks. and distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Thank you. Live coverage from CBS News, the President of the United States and the Thank State you of the Union. Thank you, General. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Please. Thank you so much. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, our First Lady and Second Gentlemen, members of Congress and the Cabinet, Justice of the Supreme Court, my fellow Americans. Last year, COVID-19 kept us apart. This year, we're finally together again. Tonight, tonight we meet as Democrats, Republicans, and Independents but most importantly, as Americans, with the duty to one another, to America, to the American people, to the Constitution, and an unwavering resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny. Thank you. 
Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. President Zelensky, to every Ukrainian, their fearlessness, their courage, their determination literally inspires the world. Groups of citizens blocking tanks with their bodies, everyone from students to retirees to teachers, turned soldiers defending their homeland. And in this struggle, President Zelensky said in his speech to the European Parliament, Light will win over darkness. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States is here tonight, sitting with the First Lady. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world of Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Right, she's strong, she's resolved. Yes. We, the United States of America, stand with the Ukrainian people. Throughout our history, we've learned this lesson. When dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. They keep moving. And the cost, the threats to the America and America to the world keeps rising. That's why the NATO alliance was created, to secure peace and stability in Europe after World War II. The United States is a member, along with 29 other nations. It matters. American diplomacy matters. American resolve matters. Putin's latest attack on Ukraine was premeditated and totally unprovoked. He rejected repeated, repeated efforts at diplomacy. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond. He thought he could divide us at home, in this chamber, in this nation. He thought he could divide us in Europe as well. But Putin was wrong. We are ready. We are united, and that's what we did. We stayed united. We prepared extensively and carefully. We spent months building coalitions of other freedom-loving nations in Europe and the Americas, to, from America to the Asian and African continents, to confront Putin. Like many of you, I spent countless hours unifying your, our European allies. We shared with the world in advance what we knew Putin was planning and precisely how we would try to falsify and justify his aggression. We countered Russia's lies with the truth. And now, now that he's acted, the three wo free world is holding him accountable, along with 27 members of the European Union, including France, Germany, Italy, as well as countries like the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and many others, even Switzerland, are inflicting pain on Russia and supporting the people of Ukraine.
Putin is now isolated from the world more than he has ever been. Together, 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 along with our allies, we are right now enforcing powerful economic sanctions. We're cutting off Russia's largest banks in the international financial system, preventing Russia's central bank from defending the Russian ruble, making Putin's $630 billion war fund worthless. We're choking Russia's access. We're choking Russia's access to technology that will sap its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders, who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States, I mean it. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for your ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. He has no idea what's coming. The ruble has already lost 30 percent of its value. The Russian stock market has lost 40 percent of its value, and trading remains suspended. The Russian economy is reeling, and Putin alone is the one to blame. Together with our allies, we're providing support to the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom. Military assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, we're giving more than a billion dollars of direct assistance to Ukraine, and we'll continue to aid the Ukrainian people as they defend their country and help ease their suffering. But let me be clear. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. For that purpose, we have mobilized American ground forces, air squadrons, ship deployments to protect NATO countries, including Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And as I've made crystal clear, the United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. And we're clear-eyed. The Ukrainians are fighting back with pure courage. But the next few days, weeks, and months will be hard on them. Putin has unleashed violence and chaos. But while he may make gains on the battlefield, he'll pay a continuing high price over the long run. And a pound of Ukrainian people, the proud, proud people, pound for pound, ready to fight with every inch of energy they have. 
They've known 30 years of independence, have repeatedly shown that they will not tolerate anyone who tries to take their country backwards. To all Americans, I'll be honest with you, as I always promised I would be, a Russian dictator invading a foreign country has cost around the world. And I'm taking robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at Russian economy and that we use every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers. Tonight, I can announce the United States has worked with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil from reserves around the world. America will lead that effort, releasing 30 million barrels of our own strategic petroleum reserve. And we stand ready to do more if necessary, united with our allies. These steps will help blunt gas prices here at home, but I know news about what's happening can seem alarming to all Americans. But I want you to know we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. Well, while it shouldn't, While it shouldn't have taken while it shouldn't have taken something so terrible for people around the world to see what's at stake, now everyone sees it clearly. We see the unity among leaders of nations, a more unified Europe, a more unified West. We see unity among the people who are gathering in cities and large crowds around the world, even in Russia, to demonstrate their support for the people of Ukraine. In the battle between democracy and autocracies, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. This is the real test, and it's going to take time. So let us continue to draw inspiration from the iron will of the Ukrainian people to our fellow Ukrainian Americans who forge the deep bond that connects our two nations. We stand with you. We stand with you. Putin may circle Kyiv with tanks but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. He'll never, he'll never extinguish their love of freedom, and he will never, never weaken the resolve of the free world. We meet tonight in an America that has lived through two of the hardest years this nation has ever faced. The pandemic has been punishing, and so many families are living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to keep up with the rising cost of food, gas, housing, and so much more. I understand, like many of you did. My dad had to leave his home in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to find work. So like many of you, I grew up in a family. When the price of food went up, it was felt throughout the family. It had an impact. That's when one of the first things I did as president was fight to pass the American Rescue Plan. Because people were hurting, we needed to act, and we did. Few pieces of legislation have done more at a critical moment in our history to lift us out of a crisis. It fueled our efforts to vaccinate the nation and combat COVID-19, delivered immediate economic relief to tens of millions of Americans. It helped put food on the table. Remember those long lines of cars waiting for hours just to get a box of food put in their trunk? 
It cut the cost of health care insurance. And as my dad used to say, it gave the people just a little bit of breathing room. Unlike the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration that benefited the top 1% of Americans, the American Rescue Plan <laughs> the American Rescue Plan helped working people and left no one behind. And it worked. It worked. It worked. We created jobs, lots of jobs. In fact, our economy created over 6.5 million new jobs just last year. More jobs in one year than ever before in the history of the United States of America. The economy grew at a rate of 5.7 last year, the strongest growth rate in 40 years, and the first step in bringing fundamental change to our economy that hasn't worked for working people in this nation for too long. For the past 40 years, we were told that tax break for those at the top and benefits would trickle down and everyone would, would benefit. But that trickle-down theory led to a weaker economic growth, lower wages, bigger deficits, and a widening gap between the top and everyone else in, in, in nearly a century. Look, <laughs> Vice President Harris and I ran for office, and I realize we have fundamental disagreements on this, but ran for office with a new economic vision for America. Invest in America. Educate Americans. Grow the workforce. Build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Because we know. Because we know. Because we know when the middle class grows, when the middle class grows, the poor have a way up and the wealthy do very well. America used to have the best roads, bridges, and airports on earth. And now, our infrastructure is ranked 13th in the world. We won't be able to compete for the jobs of the 21st century if we don't fix it. That's why it was so important to pass the bipartisan infrastructure law. And I thank my Republican friends who joined to invest and rebuild America, the single biggest investment in history. It was a bipartisan effort, and I want to thank the members of both parties who worked to make it happen. We're done talking about infrastructure weeks. We're now talking about an infrastructure decade. And look, it's going to, it's going to transform America to put us in a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century that we face with the rest of the world, particularly China. I've told Xi Jinping it's never been a good bet to bet against the American people. We'll create good jobs for millions of Americans, modernizing roads, airports, ports, waterways, all across America. And we'll do it to withstand the devastating effects of climate change and promote environmental justice. We'll build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. Begin to replace the poisonous lead pipes so every child, every American has clean water to drink at home and at school. We're going to provide, provide affordable, 
High-speed internet for every American, rural, suburban, urban, and tribal communities. 4,000 projects have already been announced. Many of you have announced them in your districts. And tonight, I'm announcing that this year, we will start fixing over 65,000 miles of highway and 1,500 bridges in disrepair. And folks, when we use taxpayers' dollars to rebuild America, we're going to do it by buying America. Buy American products. Support American jobs. The federal government spends about $600 billion a year to keep this country safe and secure. There's been a law on the books for almost a century to make sure taxpayers' dollars support American jobs and businesses. Every administration, Democrat and Republican, says they'll do it. But we're actually, we're actually doing it. We'll buy America to make sure every, everything from the deck of an aircraft carrier to the steel on highway guardrails is made in America from beginning to end. All of it. All of it. But, folks, to compete for the jobs of the future, we also need a loving playing field with China and other competitors. That's why it's so important to pass the Bipartisan Innovation Act sitting in Congress that will make record investments in emerging technologies and American manufacturing. We used to invest almost 2 percent of our GDP in research and development. We don't now. Can't. China is. Let me give you one example why it's so important to pass. If you travel 20 miles east of Columbus, Ohio, you'll find 1,000 empty acres of land. It won't look like much, but if you stop and look closely, you'll see a field of dreams, the ground on which America's future will be built. That's where Intel, the American company that helped build Silicon Valley, is going to build a $20 billion semiconductor megasite, up to eight state-of-the-art factories in one place, 10,000 new jobs. And in those factories, the average job about $135, $135,000 a year. Some of the most sophisticated manufacturing in the world to make com computer chips the size of a fingertip, the power of the world in everyday lives, from smartphones, technology, the Internet, technology is yet to be invented. But that's just the beginning. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger who is here tonight. I don't know where Pat is. Pat, there you go. Pat, stand up. Pat. Pat came to see me, and he told me they're ready to increase their investment from $20 billion to $100 billion. That would be the biggest investment in manufacturing in American history. And all they're waiting for is for you to pass this bill. So let's not wait any longer. Send it to my desk. I'll sign it. And we'll really take off in a big way. And folks, Intel is not alone. There's something happening in America. 
Just look around and you'll see an amazing story. The rebirth of pride that comes from stamping products made in America. The revitalization of American manufacturing. Companies are choosing to build new factories here when just a few years ago they would have gone overseas. That's what's happening. Ford is investing $11 billion in electric vehicles, creating 11,000 jobs across the country. GM is making the largest investment in its history, $7 billion to build electric vehicles, creating 4,000 jobs in Michigan. All told, 369,000 new manufacturing jobs were created in America last year alone. Folks, Powered by people I've met, like Jojo Burgess, from generations of union steelworkers in Pittsburgh, who's here tonight. Where are you, Jojo? There you go. Thanks, buddy. As Ohio, as Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown says, as Sherrod Brown says, it's time to bury the label Rust Belt. It's time to see the, the, what used to be called the Rust Belt become the, 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 the home of a significant resurgence of manufacturing. And with all the bright spots in our economy, record job growth, higher wages, too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. I get it. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. Look, our economy roared back faster than almost anyone predicted. But the pandemic meant that businesses had a hard time hiring enough people because of the pandemic to keep up production in their factories. So you didn't have people making those beams that went into buildings because they were out. The factory was closed. The panic also disrupted the global supply chain. Factories closed. When that happens, it takes longer to make goods and get them to the warehouses, to the stores, and go, prices go up. Look at cars last year. One-third of all the inflation was because of automobile sales. There weren't enough semiconductors to make all the cars that people wanted to buy. And guess what? Prices of automobiles went way up, especially used vehicles as well. And so we have a choice. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poorer. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. Folks, that means make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America, more goods moving faster and cheaper in America. More jobs where you can earn a good living in America. Instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America. Look, economists, increasing the productive capacity of our economy. economy. I call it 
building a better America. <laughs> My plan to fight inflation will lower your cost and lower the deficit. 17 Nobel laureates in economics said my plan will ease long-term inflationary pressures. Top business leaders, and I believe most Americans support the plan. And here's the plan. First, cut the cost of prescription drugs. We pay more for the same drug produced by the same company in America than any other country in the world. Just look at insulin. One in 10 Americans has diabetes. In Virginia, I met a 13-year-old boy, the handsome young man standing up there, Joshua Davis. He and his dad both have type 1 diabetes, which means they need insulin every single day. Insulin costs about $10 a vial to make. That's what it costs the, the pharmaceutical company. But drug companies charge families like Joshua and his dad up to 30 times that amount. I spoke with Joshua's mom. Imagine what it's like to look at your child who needs insulin to stay healthy and have no idea how in God's name you're going to be able to pay for it. What it does to your family, but what it does to your dignity, your ability to look your child in the eye, to be the parent you expect yourself to be. I really mean to think about that. That's what I think about. You know, yesterday, Joshua's here tonight, but yesterday was his birthday. Happy birthday, buddy, by the way. <clears throat> For Joshua and 200,000 other young people with type 1 diabetes, let's cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month so everyone can afford it. And drug companies will do very, very well, their profit margin. While we're at it, I know we have great disagreements on this floor with this. Let's let Medicare negotiate the price of prescription drugs. They already set the price for VA drugs. Look, the American Rescue Plan is helping millions of families with Affordable Care Act plans to save them $2,400 a year on their health premiums. Let's close the coverage gap and make these savings permanent. And second, let's cut energy costs for families, an average of $500 a year by combating climate change. Let's provide an investment tax credit to weatherize your home and your business to be energy efficient and get a tax credit for it. Double Americans' clean energy production in solar, wind, and so much more. Lower the price of electric vehicles, saving another $80 a month that you're not going to have to pay at the pump. Folks. Third. The third thing we can do to change the standard of living for hardworking folks is cut the cost of child care. Cut the cost of childcare. <laughs> Folks, if you live in a major city in America, you pay up to $14,000 a year for childcare per child. I was a single dad for five years, raising two kids. I had a lot of help, though. I had a mom, a dad, 
a brother and a sister that really helped. But middle class and working folks shouldn't have to pay more than 7% of their income to care for the young children. My plan, my plan would cut the cost of child care in half for most families and help parents, including millions of women who left the workforce during the pandemic because they couldn't afford child care to be able to get back to work, generating economic growth. But my plan doesn't stop there. It also includes home and long-term care, more affordable housing, pre-K for three- and four-year-olds. All these will lower costs for families. And under my plan, nobody — let me say this again — nobody earning less than $400,000 a year will pay an additional penny in new taxes. Not a single penny. I may be wrong, but my guess is if we took a secret ballot in this floor, that we'd all agree that the present tax system ain't fair. We have to fix it. I'm not looking to punish anybody. But let's make corporations and wealthy Americans start paying their fair share. Look, last year, last year, like Chris Coons and Tom Carper and my distinguished congresswoman, we come from the land of corporate America. There are more corporations incorporated in America than every other state in America combined. And I still won 36 years in a row. The point is, even they understand you should pay just a fair share. Last year, 55 of the Fortune 500 companies earned $40 billion in profit and paid zero in federal taxes. Now, look, it's not fair. That's why I proposed the 15 percent minimum tax rate for corporations. We've got — and that's why in the G7 and other meetings overseas, we were able to put together — I was able to be somewhat helpful — 130 countries degree on a global minimum tax rate. So companies can't get out of paying their taxes at home by shipping jobs and factories overseas. It'll raise billions of dollars. That's why I propose closing loopholes for the very wealthy who don't pay — who pay a lower tax rate than a teacher and a firefighter. So that's my plan, but we have to go more detail later. I'm going to grow — we will grow the economy, lower the cost of families. So what are we waiting for? Let's get this done. We all know we've got to make changes. <clears throat> Folks. And while you're at it, confirm my nominees for the Federal Reserve, which plays a critical role in fighting inflation. My plan will not only lower costs and give families a fair shot, it will lower the deficit. The previous administration not only ballooned the deficit with those tax cuts for the very wealthy and corporations, it undermined the watchdogs, the job of those to keep pandemic relief funds being wasted. Remember we had those debates about whether or not those watchdogs should be able to see every day how much money was being spent, where was it going to the right place? But in my administration, the watchdogs are back. And we're going to go after the criminals who stole billions of relief money, 
meant for small business and millions of Americans. Tonight, I'm announcing that the Justice Department will soon name a chief prosecutor for pandemic fraud. And look. I think we all agree. Thank you. By the end of this year, the deficit will be down to less than half of what it was before I took office. The only president ever to cut the deficit by more than $1 trillion in a single year. Lowering your cost also meant demanding more competition. I'm a capitalist, but capitalism without competition is not capitalism. Capitalism without competition is exploitation. It drives up profits. And corporations have to compete. Their profits go up and your prices go up when they don't have to compete. Small businesses and family farmers and ranchers, I need not tell some of my Republican friends from those states. Guess what? You got four basic meatpacking facilities. That's it. You play with them or you don't get to play at all. And you pay a hell of a lot more. A hell of a lot more because there's only four. See what's happening with ocean carriers and moving goods in and out of America. During the pandemic, about half a dozen or less foreign-owned companies raised prices by as much as 1,000 percent and made record profits. Tonight, I'm announcing a crackdown on those companies overcharging American businesses and consumers. Folks, And as Wall Street firms take over more nursing homes, quality in those homes has gone down and costs have gone up. That ends on my watch. Medicare is going to set higher standards for nursing homes and make sure your loved ones get the care they deserve and that they inspect and they will look at closely. We're also going to cut costs to keep the economy going strong and giving workers a fair shot, provide more training and apprenticeships, hire them based on skills, not just their degrees. Let's pass the Paycheck Fairness Act and pay leave. Raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And extend the child tax credit so no one has to raise the family in poverty. Let's increase Pell Grants, increase our historic support for HBCUs. And invest in what Jill... Our First Lady, who teaches full-time, calls America's best-kept secret, community colleges. Look, let's pass the PRO Act. When a majority of workers want to form a union, they shouldn't be able to be stopped. When we invest in our workers and we build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out together, we can do something we haven't done in a long time, build a better America. For more than two years, COVID has impacted every decision in our lives and the life of this nation. And I know you're tired, frustrated, and exhausted. That doesn't even count the close to a million people who sit at a dining room table or a kitchen table and look at an empty chair because they lost somebody. But I also know this. Because of the progress we've made, because of your resilience and the tools that we have been provided by this Congress, Tonight, I can say we're moving forward safely back to a no, norm, more normal routines. We've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19. 
where severe cases are down to a level not seen since July of last year. Just a few days ago, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new mask guidelines. Under the new guidelines, most Americans and most of the country can now go mask-free. And based on projections, and based on projections, more of the country will reach a point across that point across the next couple of weeks. And thanks to the progress we've made in the past year, COVID-19 no longer need control our lives. I know some are talking about living with COVID-19. But tonight, I say that we never will just accept living with COVID-19. We'll continue to combat the virus as we do other diseases. And because this virus mutates and spreads, we have to stay on guard. And here are four common-sense steps as we move forward safely, in my view. First, Stay protected with vaccines and treatments. We know how incredibly effective vaccines are. If you're vaccinated and boosted, you have the highest degree of protection. And we'll never give up on vaccinating more Americans. Now, I know parents with kids under five are eager to see their vaccines authorized for their children. Scientists are working hard to get that done. We'll be ready with plenty of vaccines if and when they do. We're all ready. We, we are also ready with antiviral treatments. If you get COVID-19, the Pfizer pill reduces your chances of ending up in the hospital by 90 percent. I've ordered more pills than anyone in the world has. Pfizer is working overtime to get us a million pills this month and more than double that next month. And now we're launching the Test to Treat initiative. So people can get tested at a pharmacy and if they prove positive, receive the antiviral pills on the spot at no cost. Folks, if you're, immo- if you're immunocompromised or have some other vulnerability, we have treatments and free high-quality masks. We're leaving no one behind or ignoring anyone's needs as we move forward. On testing, we've made hundreds of millions of tests available, and you can order them for free to your doorstep. And we've already ordered free tests. If you already ordered free tests tonight, I'm announcing you can order another group of tests. Go to covidtest.gov starting next week, and you can get more tests. Second, we must prepare for new variants. Over the past, we've gotten much better at detecting new variants. If necessary, we'll be able to develop new vaccines within 100 days instead of maybe months or years. And if Congress presides the funds we need, we'll have new stockpiles of tests, masks, pills ready if needed. I can't promise a new variant won't come, but I can can promise you we'll do everything within our power to be ready if it does. Third, we can end the shutdown of schools and businesses. We have the tools we need. It's time for America to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again with people. People working from home can feel safe and begin to return to their offices. We're doing that here in the federal government. The vast majority of federal workers will once again work in person. Our schools are open. Let's keep it that way. Our kids need to be in school.
With 75% of adult Americans fully vaccinated and hospitalizations down by 77%, most Americans can remove their masks and stay in the classroom and move forward safely. We achieved this because we provided free vaccines, treatments, tests, and masks. Of course, continuing this costs money. So I'll not surprise you. I'll be back to see you all. And I'm going to soon send a request to Congress. The vast majority of Americans have used these tools and may want again. We may need them again. So I expect Congress, and I hope you'll pass that quickly. Fourth, we'll continue vaccinating the world. We've sent 475 million vaccine doses to 112 countries, more than any nation on Earth. We won't stop. Because you can't build a wall high enough to keep out a, 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 a vaccine. The vaccine can stop the spread of these diseases. You know, we've lost so much in COVID-19. Time with one another. The worst of all, the much the loss of life. Let's use this moment to reset. So stop looking at COVID as a partisan dividing line. See it for what it is a god-awful disease. Let's stop sending each, seeing each other as enemies and start seeing each other for who we are, fellow Americans. Look. <laughs> we, we can't change how divided we've been. It was a long time in coming, but we can change how to move forward on COVID-19 and other issues that we must face together. I recently visited New York City Police Department days after the funerals of Officer Wilbur Mora and his partner, Officer Jason Rivera. They were responding to a 9-11 call when a man shot and killed them with a stolen gun. Officer Mora was 27 years old. Officer Rivera was 22 years old. Both Dominican-Americans, who grew up in the same streets that they later chose to parole to uh, patrol as police officers. I spoke with their families, and I told them that we are forever in debt for their sacrifices and will carry on their mission to restore the trust and safety of every community deserves. Like some of you that have been around for a while, I've worked with you on these issues for a long time. I know what works investigating crime prevention and community policing, cops who walk the beat, who know the neighborhood, and who can restore trust and safety. Let's not abandon our streets or choose between safety and equal justice. Let's come together and protect our communities, restore trust, and hold law enforcement accountable. That's why the Justice Department has required body cameras, banned choke calls, and restricted no-knock warrants for its officers. That's why the American Rescue Plan that you all provided $350 billion that cities, states, and counties can use to hire more police, invest in more proven strategies. <clears throat> proven strategies like proven strategies like community violence interruption, trusted messengers breaking the cycle of violence and trauma giving young people some hope. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. 
Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. I ask Democrats and Republicans alike to pass my budget and keep our neighborhoods safe. And we'll do everything in my power to crack down on gun trafficking of ghost guns that you can buy online, assemble at home, no serial numbers, can't be traced. I ask Congress to pass proven measures to reduce gun violence, pass universal background checks. Why should anyone on the terrorist list be able to purchase a weapon? Why? Why? And folks, ban assault weapons with high-capacity magazines hold up 100 rounds. You think the deer are wearing Kevlar vests? Look, repeal the liability shield that makes gun manufacturers the only industry in America that can't be sued. The only one. Imagine had we done that with the tobacco manufacturers. These laws don't infringe on the Second Amendment. They save lives. The most fundamental right in America is the right to vote and have it counted. And look, it's under assault. In state after state, new laws have been passed. Not only to suppress the vote, we've been there before, but to subvert the entire election. We can't let this happen. Tonight, I call on the Senate to pass, pass the Freedom to Vote Act, pass the John Lewis Act, Voting Rights Act. And while you're at it, pass the Disclose Act so Americans know who's funding our election. Look, tonight, I'd like to honor someone who dedicated his life to serve this country, Justice Breyer, an Army veteran, constitutional scholar, retiring justice of the United States Supreme Court. Justice Breyer, thank you for your service. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We mean it. Get up. Stand up and see you. Thank you. And we all know, no matter what your ideology, we all know one of the most serious constitutional responsibility a president has is nominating someone to serve on the United States Supreme Court. As I did four days ago, I've nominated the Circuit Court of Appeals, Katanji Brown-Jackson, one of our nation's top legal minds, who continue in Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence. A former top litigator in private practice, a former federal public defender, from a family of public school educators and police officers. She's a consensus builder. Since she's been nominated, she's received a broad range of support, including the Fraternal Order of Police and former judges supported by Democrats and Republicans. Folks, if we are to advance liberty and justice, we need to secure our border and fix the immigration system. And as you might guess, I think we can do both. 
At our border, we've installed new technology like cutting-edge scanners to better detect drug smuggling. We've set up joint patrols with Mexico and Guatemala to catch more human traffickers. We're putting in place dedicated immigration judges in significant larger number so families fleeing persecution and violence can have their cases heard faster and those who don't legitimately hear can be sent back. We're screening, we're securing commitments and supporting partners in South and Central America to host more refugees and secure their own borders. We can do all this while keeping lit the torch of liberty that has led the generation of immigrants to this land, my forebears and many of yours. Provide a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, those with temporary status, farm workers, essential workers. Revise our laws so businesses have workers they need and families don't wait decades to reunite. It's not only the right thing to do, it's economically smart thing to do. That's why the immigration reform is supported by everyone from labor unions to religious leaders to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Let's get it done once and for all. Folks, advancing liberty and justice also requires protecting the rights of women. The constitutional right affirmed by Roe v. Wade, standing precedent for half a century, is under attack as never before. If you want to go forward, not backwards, we must protect access to health care, preserve a woman's right to choose and continue to advance maternal health care for all Americans. And folks, for our LGBTQ plus Americans, let's finally get the Bipartisan Equality Act to my desk. I said last year, especially to our younger transgender Americans, I'll always have your back as your president so you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. Folks, as I've just demonstrated, while it often appears we do not agree, and that we, we do agree on a lot more things than we acknowledge, I signed 80 bipartisan bills in the law last year, from preventing government shutdowns to protecting Asian Americans from still too common hate crimes to reforming military justice, and will soon be strengthening the Violence Against Women Act that I first wrote three decades ago. It's important. It's important for us to show, to show the nation we can come together and do big things. So tonight I'm offering a unity agenda for the nation. Four big things we can do together, in my view. First, beat the opioid epidemic. There's so much we can do. Increase funding for prevention, treatment, harm reduction and recovery. Get rid of outdated rules and stop doctors and, and the, that stop doctors from prescribing treatments. Stop the flow of illicit drugs by working with state and local law enforcement to go after the traffickers. And if you're suffering from addiction, you know you should know you're not alone. I believe in recovery, and I celebrate the 23 million, 23 million Americans in recovery. Second, let's take on mental health, especially among our children whose lives and education have been turned upside down. The American Rescue Plan gave schools money to hire teachers and help students make up for lost learning. 
I urge every parent to make sure your school, your school does just that. They have the money. We can all play a part. Sign up to be a tutor or a mentor. Children are also struggling before the pandemic. Bullying, violence, trauma, and the harms of social media. As Frances Haugen, who is here tonight with us, has shown, we must hold social media platforms accountable for the national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. Folks, thank you. Thank you for the courage you showed. It's time to strengthen privacy protections, ban targeted advertising to children, demand tech companies stop collecting personal data on our children, and let's get all Americans the mental health services they need. More people can turn for help and full parity between physical and mental health care if we treat it that way in our insurance. Look. The third piece of that agenda is support our veterans. Veterans are the backbone and the spine of this country. They're the best of us. I've always believed that we have a sacred obligation to equip those we send to war and care for those and their family when they come home. My administration is providing assistance in job training, housing, and now helping lower-income veterans get VA care debt-free. And our troops in Iraq have faced and Afghanistan have faced many dangers, one being stationed at bases breathing in toxic smoke from burn pits. Many of you have been there. I've been in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan over 40 times. These burn pits that incinerate waste, the waste of war, medical and hazards material, jet fuel, and so much more. And they come home, many of the world's fittest and best-trained warriors in the world, never the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, a cancer that would put them in a flag-draped coffin. I know. One of those, one of those soldiers was my son, Major Bo Biden. I don't know for sure if the burn pit that he lived near, that his hooch was near in Iraq and earlier than that in Kosovo, is the cause of his brain cancer, the disease of so many other troops. But I am committed to find out everything we can, committed to military families like Danielle Robinson from Ohio, the widow of Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson. He was born a soldier, Army National Guard, combat medic in Kosovo and Iraq, stationed near Baghdad just yards from burn pits the size of football fields. Danielle is here with us tonight. They love going to Ohio State football games. building Legos with their daughter. But cancer from prolonged exposure to burn pits ravaged Heath's lungs and body. Danielle says Heath was a fighter to the very end. 
He didn't know how to stop fighting, and neither did she. Through her pain, she found purpose to demand that we do better. Tonight, Danielle, we are going to do better. The VA, the VA is pioneering new ways of linking toxic exposure to disease, already helping more veterans get benefits. And tonight, I'm announcing we're expanding eligibility to veterans suffering from nine respiratory cancers. I'm also calling on Congress to pass a law to make sure veterans devastated by toxic exposure in Iraq and Afghanistan finally get the benefits of the comprehensive health care they deserve. And fourth and last, let's end cancer as we know it. This is personal. This is personal to me and to Jill and to Kamala and so many of you. So many of you have lost someone you love. Husband, wife, son, daughter, mom, dad. Cancer is the number two cause of death in America, second only to heart disease. Last month, I announced the plan to supercharge the cancer moonshot that President Obama asked me to lead six years ago. Our goal is to cut cancer death rates by at least 50 percent over the next 25 years. I think we can do better than that. Turn cancers from death sentences into treatable diseases. More support for patients and their families. To get there, I call on Congress to fund what I call ARPA-H, Advanced, Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, patterned after DARPA and the Defense Department, projects that led in DARPA to the Internet, GPS, and so much more to make our forces more safer and be able to wage war more with more clarity. ARPA will have a singular purpose to drive breakthroughs in cancer, Alzheimer's and diabetes, and more. A unity agenda for the nation. We can do these things. It's within our power. And I don't see a partisan edge to any one of those four things. My fellow Americans, tonight, we've gathered in this sacred space, a citadel of democracy, in this capital, Generation after generation of Americans have debated great questions amid great strife and have done great things. We fought for freedom, expanded liberty, debated totalitarianism and terror. We built the strongest, freest, and most prosperous nation the world has ever known. Now is the hour, our moment of responsibility, our test of resolve and conscience, of history itself, it is in this moment that our character of this generation is formed. Our purpose is found. Our future is forged. Well, I know this nation. We'll meet the test, protect freedom and liberty, expand fairness and opportunity, and we will save democracy. As hard as those times have been, I'm more optimistic about America today than I've been my whole life, because I see the future that's within our grasp. 
because I know there's simply nothing beyond our, our capacity. We're the only nation on earth that has always turned every crisis we've faced into an opportunity. The only nation that can be defined by a single word, possibilities. So on this night, on our 245th year as a nation, I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this. The state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him. Live coverage from CBS News, President Joe Biden in the House chamber getting the applause after his first State of the Union speech. I'm Steve Kaith in CBS News. The Republican response from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is coming up soon. Mr. Biden turning to the women behind him and shaking hands with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and with Vice President Harris. Now he'll begin to walk out the chamber and he's meeting with people as he does. CBS's Steve Dorsey is watching it all. Steve? Yeah, on the uh, floor below me, the uh, president is beginning to make his way out of the chamber. And as we heard, this was a, a message of unity. He ended his, 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 his remarks to this joint session of Congress saying, quote, the State of the Union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. This was a, a speech about unifying to confront challenges. The top of the speech uh, addressed countering Russia and its uh, assaults on Ukraine. Uh, challenges in reinvigorating the middle class and, and addressing inflation by cutting costs and, and buying American. Uh, child care, long-term care, health care, mental health of Americans. They also addressed the challenges of moving forward from COVID, but being prepared to pivot and uh, addressing new variants that might pop up. He also uh, talked about LGBTQ and women's rights that are important to his administration, along with supporting veterans. I should also say, Stephen, uh, Steve Kathan, that they that there was some Republican support uh, throughout uh, the the president's remarks tonight. Um, with uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, seated in the Republican section alongside. Uh, Senator Mitt Romney, both of them uh, seeming to support uh, several key moments, including uh, investing in American technology, veteran support, uh, cutting health care costs and prescri- prescription drug costs, especially when he singled out the rising price of insulin and, and some other moments that, that drew even wider Republican support, including holding social media companies accountable for how they use the data of children that they may or may not target online, and of course border security, where we saw a controversial uh, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene shout out, build the wall, build the wall, uh, as the president was talking about uh, keeping the country safe and the, and the country's borders safe. I should also say that Marjorie Taylor Greene was uh, seated uh, 
along with other Republicans, uh, closer together than most of the rest of the chamber. They're ignoring the, the social distancing throughout the rest of the, the House chamber on the floor and into the galleries. Everyone has been spaced uh, about two seats apart. Uh, that group uh, and, and some others chose uh, to, to see themselves. Steve. Not much social distancing now as a crowd has formed around the president as he hugs people and walks out. Democrats, Steve, sticking around for some time with the president. Uh, most Republicans, it looks like, uh, have, have filed out or are in the process of doing so. Yeah, they, they, I would say it's about uh, a, a third full now, including uh, up here in the galleries where, where most lawmakers have already departed. They're departing with these little miniature Ukrainian flags that were handed out uh, before the president's remarks uh, began. Some were also given uh, these uh, Ukrainian stickers. Others are uh, wearing uh, blue and, and, and gold attire, blue suit jackets. Uh, uh, some women are wearing uh, gold dresses. Uh, others are, are wearing these little ribbons, uh, these blue and gold ribbons that were uh, handed out and distributed by uh, one of the chairs of the uh, Congressional Ukraine Caucus. Uh, so there is a lot of support tonight uh, for Ukraine, along uh, with uh, the First Lady, who invited uh, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markova. Uh, if I have that name right, Markova, excuse me, Oksana Markova, who was seated in the First Lady's box and uh, got a lot of support from President Biden during the speech, along with the First Lady as she watched uh, the State of the Union unfold. She stood up on a couple of occasions to acknowledge the applause of the crowd. Uh, Steve Dorsey, thanks. We're going to check in with White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen uh, started out uh, with uh, Ukraine and uh, drifted into the economy for President Biden, hitting those two major points early on. And throughout, Steve, what struck me over the 62 minutes the president held forth in the House chamber was how often he tried to uh, aim to connect directly with Americans who are frustrated, um, who are concerned, who are angry about the situation in the country. The president said when it comes to Ukraine, uh, the news what's happening can can seem alarming, but I want you to know that we are going to be okay. When it comes to inflation, the rising prices of food, gas, housing, the president said, quote, I get it. My top priority is getting prices under control. He called again, as he so often has, for the passage of his stalled legislative agenda to, among other things, lower the cost of prescription drugs and child care and other things Americans need and depend on. The president turning to the pandemic, acknowledging Americans are tired, frustrated, and exhausted after two years. He urged a COVID reset tonight. He hailed the new mask guidance. That is rather conveniently timed to today that allows for the enti- essentially the entire House chamber uh, to uh, not wear masks. Uh, the president uh, talked about the emergence of an increasing availability of new antiviral pills. He announced a test-to-treat initiative that would mean that people who test positive for COVID at a pharmacy can right there on the spot receive antiviral pills for free. He also suggested that Americans who've been working from home for the past two years can now feel safe that they can return to the office and return to America's downtowns. He also uh, concluded his speech by calling for a unity agenda for the nation to, among other things, overcome the opioid pandemic and find a cure for cancer. As the president makes his way slowly out of the House chamber, we'll bring in CBS's Cammie McCormick. Certainly interesting what he said about Ukraine. He said 
Vladimir Putin met a wall of strength as he tried to roll through the country, the Ukrainian people. Yeah, it's not just, according to defense officials, the uh, Ukrainian resistance. It's the fact that the Russians may not have planned as well as they could have for this invasion of Ukraine and have run into logistics problems, all sorts of things. The president talked about the more than $1 billion in direct assistance that the U.S. has offered to Ukraine, and he said it was inflicting more pain on Russia. He talked about the, the Russian currency, the ruble, and he said that Russian President Putin is now isolated from the world more than ever. He also talked about, of course, cutting off Russia's banking system. It's elite, by the way, seizing everything from yachts and luxury apartments from Russia's elites, and he said, we're coming for you. And, of course, he announced the latest U.S. action, which is blocking Russian aircraft from U.S. airspace, Steve. Kemi, thanks. Let's bring in Leonard Steinhorn, our political analyst. He's written his share of speeches in his career. What did you think of President Biden's first State of the Union speech? Look, this is the speech that Joe Biden has been waiting to give all his political life. There's been this emerging narrative of his presidency that it's weak, incompetent, and feckless. Well, tonight he showed toughness, strength, command, vision, determination, optimism, and energy. In effect, he knows we are a nation suffering from COVID fatigue and from polarization and partisanship. What he was hoping with this speech to do was to give us a shot of adrenaline, a shot of optimism, a sense that we can restore confidence, that we can move forward as a country and begin to get things done as a people, not divided, but united. That's the overriding message that he wanted to communicate. So look, he said that government can be a positive force in bettering our lives he wants to restore faith that things can get done, that the political system can work, that democracy is strong. Also with us, retired White House correspondent Peter Mayer. He's uh, analyzed this speech and listened to it along with us. President Biden is exiting the House chamber, stopping to talk to a lot of people along the way. Peter, he asked for uh, Congress to act on several measures, put out an agenda. Usually a president will go out and sell the agenda, maybe not so much now because of uh, the circumstances being what they are. But what did you think of what was said tonight? Well, as a matter of fact, he is going to Wisconsin tomorrow with the first lady. So uh, he will start selling it tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we see that uh, his comfort level in the House chamber is on display. Lots of face time for uh, the people who are uh, in lingering around there. You know, in his six Senate terms, Delaware's longest-serving senator, Steve, he was in that chamber for State of the Union speeches by eight of his predecessors, including sitting in the uh, vice president's chair uh, during the Obama State of the Union speeches. Uh, you know, in terms of what you uh, just mentioned, before I went into that little bit of a play-by-play, -play, uh, the president devoted the first 11 and a half minutes of his speech to the crisis in Ukraine. He mentioned Russian dictator Putin by name 12 times and saw a standing ovation early on in the speech when he said that uh, freedom will always triumph over tyranny. And he pointedly said that Putin has no idea of what's coming. Even before he said that the State of the Union is sound, Steve, he reassured the nation we're going to be okay. Uh, he knows how jittery people are right now, and he wasn't shy about mentioning the issue that will have a big role in the outcome of the midterm election. Uh, they know what the polls are, and he mentioned repeatedly 
repeatedly inflation, telling the audience in the chamber uh, and beyond, I get it. He also, I think, I think he gave Democrats a possible populist midterm election theme in terms of how to fight inflation. He said, lower costs, not wages. Peter Mayer, thanks very much. Let's go back inside the House chamber. CBS's Steve Dorsey covering the speech for us. Steve. Steve, the House Sergeant at Arms is, is trying to escort the President through a crowd of uh, some adoring lawmakers uh, who right now he is uh, taking some selfies uh, with some of the lawmakers. I saw Senator Patrick Leahy in the back uh, using his camera to, to take some photos of of the crowd gathered around the President. He's about uh, five rows uh, behind the chamber door well, where he will make his exit. His uh, cabinet uh, and his uh, chiefs of staff uh, are uh, still uh, closer to the rostrum waiting for the president to exit uh, as we continue uh, to uh, reflect on what the president said for, for more than an hour, Stephen. And as you say, as the president exits the chamber when he is out, that sort of gets things rolling. We'll get closer to hearing from the Republicans. The Republican response will be given by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. She will deliver it. Run a little over 10 minutes, I would say, but that won't start right away. It'll start a little bit after the president leaves the chamber. So we can talk more about what the president said tonight. And White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy, I think, uh, the you know, the, the Ukraine situation was dealt with, as Peter Mayer said, for about 11 minutes. But really, the economic stuff is is what I think he wanted to deliver most to the American people who are really wondering about inflation right now. Well, and the, the economic pressures that Americans face are in part what has uh, led the president's approval rating in our poll to drop down to 44 percent. And so the president says that his top priority is getting prices under control. Uh, the, uh, the president uh, made some news in his speech tonight, not with respect to his legislative agenda and, and uh, the, really the economy, because so much of that uh, we've heard before. But when it comes to Ukraine, I'll point out the president announced that the United States would join Europe in banning uh, overflights of, of Russian aircraft, uh, banning, uh, for example, flights from Moscow to New York. Those Aeroflot flights uh, that would normally be landing at JFK have now been canceled, and there's no uh, telling when they'll be uh, restarting. Uh, the president announced when it comes to the pandemic and, and the, the allegation that's been aired that certain companies uh, uh, illegally profited uh, taking government funds during the pandemic. The president announced the Justice Department would be appointing a chief prosecutor for pandemic fraud. When it comes to the economy, the president, as part of his efforts to uh, control prices, the president says that he's uh, a, a capitalist, but uh, that capitalism without some kind of controls is not capitalism, it's exploitation. And so he announced his administration's going to engage in a crackdown on foreign ocean carriers that he alleged have uh, increased prices unreasonably. When it comes to the pandemic, the president announced a new initiative called Test to Treat. This whole idea will be... It, you could go into a pharmacy, take a test there, and if you test positive for COVID, you will on the spot receive free antiviral pills. The president pointed in the uh, gallery in the first lady's box to the CEO of Intel. He said that uh, that company would be ready to invest $100 billion in a new plant if Congress were to follow uh, his uh, advice and pass a uh, the legislative package 
that would uh, facilitate the, the company's plans. The president continues shaking hands with members of Congress, mainly Democrats, to my eye, uh, as uh, he, uh, as a, a former member of Congress who served for 36 years in the body, attended, I suppose, uh, 36 plus 8 is 42 State of the Union addresses, and now he is uh, basking in the adulation of members of Congress uh, in the body that he once served. And I wonder, Stephen Portnoy, he talked about uh, getting Congress to pass several different measures. Certainly Congress is still a divided place. Not going to be as easy as just waving a wand. It's 252 days until the November midterm elections. Republicans are aiming to take control of one or both houses of Congress. And uh, the idea of giving uh, the president another legislative achievement uh, after uh, he claims he's, he's gotten so much done in the first year uh, that he's been in office with the passage of the American Rescue Plan, uh, the Republicans are not of a mind to do it. There might be some avenues of bipartisanship, particularly when it comes to a, a bill that would aim to make American manufacturing more competitive uh, in the world uh, with respect to high technology. And that is an area where you saw members of both parties standing and applauding. But the fact is that when uh, the president didn't use the phrase build back better, he did talk about building a better future for the country. Um, but often we would notice when the president was talking about his legislative agenda, Republicans simply sat on their hands and looked uh, you know, bored uh, and not at all interested in uh, applauding the president's plans to, among other things, um, have uh, Medicare negotiate prices for prescription drugs, uh, have uh, the federal government uh, helping to uh, take care of some of the cost of child care, and uh, perhaps most importantly to the Republican caucus, um, raise taxes on uh, high earners. Uh, th those are the things that the, the, the president uh, has been advocating for, for many years, but uh, the, the Congress has, uh, at the moment, not expressed an interest in the whole on, on getting it done. While Democrats, of course, control the House, uh, th there's not enough votes in the Senate, Steve. The president has left the House chamber. This is special coverage from CBS News. I'm Steve Kaith in CBS News. We heard from President Biden tonight, his first State of the Union address. We're going to hear shortly from the Republicans. Their response, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is coming up. And uh, we'll talk a bit about her as, uh, as we get closer to that. And as we continue to analyze the president's speech, let's go back to the House chamber. CBS's Steve Dorsey. Hey, Steve. Yes, the uh, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, uh, just dissolved this joint session of Congress after the president uh, exited. It was uh, one where very few masks were seen. It was a very different uh, vibe and environment than we saw last year for his address to a joint session of Congress. Here, everyone uh, in this chamber uh, was COVID tested yesterday. Masks optional for the first time uh, in months on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, security outside the U.S. Capitol building has been tight. Uh, a temporary metal fence was uh, erected around the U.S. Capitol building. There has been uh, traffic issues and, and police as far away as New York City uh, converged on the city preparing for demonstrations or these trucker convoys that have been organized online so far from my vantage point. Uh, 
arriving on Capitol Hill. I haven't seen really any kind of de- demonstration. The one demonstration that was visible tonight was support for Ukraine, of course, in President Biden's remarks in his State of the Union address, but also on the floor of the House, where still some members uh, linger, wearing uh, blue and gold to support uh, Ukraine that is currently being besieged by uh, Russia and, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Up on the balconies, we saw the Russian, uh, the, the Ukrainian ambassador welcomed as a guest of the First Lady uh, to, to a standing ovation during the, the president's remarks. We saw uh, miniature Ukrainian flags and stickers and uh, ribbons handed out to members of Congress and the Senate uh, as the president promised to get tough on Ukraine before addressing other issues of national importance, including COVID-19, uh, the U.S. economy and uh, health care, uh, veterans care and, and mental health. Steve. Steve Dorsey, thanks. It'll be interesting. White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy, as we'll hear from Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, the Republican response. Certainly it'll be uh, an effort uh, over the past few days, it has been, by the Republicans to try to portray the president as weak on Ukraine. He tried to sound strong. He got a great response from the crowd in the House chamber when he talked about Ukraine and the resolve to uh, target Putin and his economy. In excerpts released in advance, the Republican governor of Iowa is going to describe how it feels like, and this is a quote from the excerpts released by the Republicans, it feels like President Biden and his party have set us back in time to the late 70s and early 80s when runaway inflation was hammering families, a violent crime wave was crashing in our cities, and the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. The the Republican governor of Iowa will say that uh, Americans must stand united in solidarity with the brave people of Ukraine. Uh, But uh, on the whole, it appears as though the president's uh, response from the Republican Party will have the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, uh, saying that uh, Joe Biden's uh, administration is not more uh, proactively stood up to Vladimir Putin. It'll be very interesting to see to what extent she criticizes the president in the uh, the aftermath of what uh, we saw in the House chamber, which was overwhelming bipartisanship in favor of what the president was saying about supporting the people of Ukraine. And Stephen, some have talked about Kim Reynolds as a possible presidential hopeful. Well, it's often said that the people who are given this opportunity to respond to the president have a national platform to uh, speak to the country, but it, uh, it, to my mind, I'm not sure that it necessarily is, is, is a great way to portend uh, who might be a future leader of the party. I can think of uh, people who have been given the opportunity in the past, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tightrope, right? Think of all the uh, times we've seen uh, people giving these speeches, and then, uh, you know, um, the moment passes. We're getting set now for Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Good evening. I'm Kim Reynolds, governor of the great state of Iowa. Like you, I just watched the president's address. I listened as the governor of our state, as a mom and a grandmother of 11, who's worried our country is on the wrong track. We're now one year into his presidency, and instead of moving America forward, it feels like President Biden and his party have sent us back in time to the late 70s and early 80s. When runaway inflation was hammering families, a violent crime wave was crashing our cities, and the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. Even before taking the oath of office, the president told us that he wanted to, quote, 
make America respected around the world again and to unite us here at home. He's failed on both fronts. The disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal did more than cost American lives. It betrayed our allies and emboldened our enemies. North Korea is testing missiles again at an alarming rate. The Speaker of the House recently warned our Olympic athletes not to speak out against China. And now Russia has launched an unprovoked full-scale military invasion of Ukraine, an attack on democracy, freedom, and the rule of law. Now all Americans must stand united in solidarity with the brave people of Ukraine as they courageously defend their country against Putin's tyranny as they fight for their freedom. But we shouldn't ignore what happened in the run-up to Putin's invasion, waiving sanctions on Russian pipelines while eliminating oil production here at home, focusing on political correctness rather than military readiness, reacting to world events instead of driving them. Weakness on the world stage has a cost, and the president's approach to foreign policy has consistently been too little, too late. It's time for America to once again project confidence. It's time to be decisive. It's time to lead. But we can't project strength abroad if we're weak at home. And that's what I want to discuss with you tonight. The President and Democrats in Congress have spent the last year either ignoring the issues facing Americans or making them worse. They were warned that spending trillions would lead to soaring inflation. They were told that their anti-energy policies would send gas prices to new heights. But they plowed ahead anyway, raising the price at the pump by 50 percent and pushing inflation to a 40-year high. Four decades ago, when our nation was last reeling from inflation, I was a young working mom just starting out. My husband Kevin worked days while I watched our girls, and then we would literally switch. We would pass in the yard as he was coming home, and I was leaving to work evenings at the local grocery store. From across that checkout counter, I saw the pain of inflation on my neighbors' faces. I saw what happens when prices rise faster than wages. The Biden administration believes inflation is a, quote, high-class problem. I can tell you, it's an everybody problem. I saw moms and dads' paychecks buy them less and less. I watched working people choose which essentials to take home and which ones to leave behind. And now President Biden's decisions have a whole new generation feeling that same pain. When I took the oath of office five years ago, I promised Iowans that I would never lose sight of who I was working for, that I wouldn't become detached from the problems they were facing, from the problems that I had faced myself. But you don't have to check groceries to see what high inflation does to people. You just need to step outside of the D.C. bubble. Talk to Americans about what's on their mind. Ask them, what are your concerns? What keeps you up at night? And they'll tell you. And I can tell you what's not on that list. They won't tell you that spending trillions more and bankrupting their children is the answer to their problems. They won't tell you that we should be paying people not to work 
And they certainly won't tell you that we should give billions in tax giveaways to millionaires and billionaires in Democrat-controlled states like California, New York, and New Jersey. But that's what the Biden administration has been pushing for over the last year. And that's all part of Build Back Better. Thankfully, the president's agenda didn't pass because even members of his own party said enough is enough. Well, the American people share that view. Enough is enough. And it's not just with D.C. spending. Americans are tired of a political class trying to remake this country into a place where an elite few tell everyone else what they can and cannot say, what they can and cannot believe. They're tired of people pretending the way to end racism is by categorizing everybody by their race. They're tired of politicians who tell parents they should sit down, be silent, and let government control their kids' education and future. Frankly, they are tired of the theater, where politicians do one thing when the cameras are rolling and another when they believe you can't see them, where governors and mayors enforce mandates but don't follow them, where elected leaders tell their citizens to stay home while they sneak off to Florida for sun and fun where they demand that your child wear a mask, but they go maskless. So you've heard the excuses. They were just holding their breath. But it's the American people who are waiting to exhale, waiting for the insanity to stop. We now live in a country where violent crime is out of control. Liberal prosecutors are letting criminals off easy and many prominent Democrats still want to defund the police. You know, it seems like everything is backwards. The Biden administration requires vaccines for Americans who want to go to work or protect this country, but not for migrants who illegally cross the border. The Department of Justice treats parents like domestic terrorists, but looters and shoplifters roam free. The American people are left to feel like they're the enemy. This is not the same country it was a year ago. The president tried to paint a different picture tonight, but his actions over the last 12 months don't match the rhetoric. It's not what he promised when he took office. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is an alternative. Across the nation, Republican governors and legislators are showing Americans what conservative leadership looks like, what it means to respect the people we serve, to hear them out, to stand up for them and walk alongside them. We know that our problems require bold action, but we also know that bold action doesn't have to mean government action. It's Americans making their own decisions for their own families and future. Republican governors face the same COVID-19 virus head-on. But we honored your freedoms and saw right away that lockdowns and school closures, they came with their own significant cost, that mandates weren't the answer. And we actually listened to the science, especially with kids in masks and kids in schools. 
what happened and is still happening to our children over the last two years is unconscionable. Learning loss, isolation, anxiety, depression. In so many states, our kids have been left behind and so many will never catch up. That's why Iowa was the first state in the nation to require that schools open their doors. I was attacked by the left, I was attacked by the media, but it wasn't a hard choice. It was the right choice. And keeping schools open is only the start of the pro-parent, pro-family revolution that Republicans are leading in Iowa and states across this country. Republicans believe that parents matter. It was true before the pandemic and it has never been more important to say out loud, parents matter. They have a right to know and to have a say in what their kids are being taught. Families also have every right to live in a safe and a secure community. And that begins with a safe and secure country. But the Biden administration has refused to secure our border. They've refused to provide the resources to stop human trafficking, to stop the staggering influx of deadly drugs coming into our neighborhoods. They've refused to protect you. With Texas and Arizona leading the way, I, along with Republican governors from several states, have sent resources to the border. And we've actually gone to the border, something that our president and vice president have yet to do since taking office. On the economy, the contrast couldn't be more stark. While Democrats in D.C. are spending trillions, sending inflation soaring, Republican leaders around the country are balancing budgets and cutting taxes because we know that money spent on Main Street is better than money spent on bureaucracy. Today, I signed legislation that eliminates Iowa's tax on retirement income and sets our tax rate at 3.9%. That's less than half of what it was just four years ago. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that out of the top 20 states with the lowest unemployment rates, 17 have Republican governors. Republicans may not have the White House, but we're doing what we can to fill the leadership vacuum. And on the issues that are affecting Americans, Republicans are leading. We're standing up for parents and kids. We're standing up for life. We're keeping our communities safe and thanking those in uniform. We're fighting to restore America's energy independence, and that includes biofuels. We're getting people back to work, not paying them to stay home. Most of all, we're respecting your freedom. Behind me stands Iowa's Capitol, where we display our state motto, our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. And those aren't just empty words. It's a belief that the greatness of this state and this country lies in our people, not government. You shouldn't have to wake up every morning and worry about the next thing the government is going to do to you, your business, or your children. If we as elected leaders are doing our job, then the government is working well 
but operating in the background. It's supporting the ingenuity and spirit of our people, not drowning them out. It's keeping them safe, not restricting their freedom. That's what I believe, that's what Republicans believe, and that's what Republicans are doing. I am so blessed to be the governor of Iowa, where people are humble, hardworking, and patriotic. We take care of each other. And yes, we are, as they say, Iowa nice. But you don't have to be from Iowa to see that those are the values of America at its best, all of America. Over the last few years, I've put my faith in Iowans, and they haven't let me down. I encourage this president to do the same, to put his faith in you, the American people, who have never wavered in your belief in this country, regardless of who leads it. Because you know, you've shown that the soul of America isn't about who lives in the White House. It's men and women like you in every corner of this nation who are willing to step up and take responsibility for your communities, for your neighbors, and ultimately for yourselves. By that most important measure at least, the state of our union is indeed strong. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds wrapping up a response to President Biden's State of the Union address. We're back with our continuing coverage and analysis of the speeches tonight. This one from Kim Reynolds from the Republicans says President Biden is setting us back in time to a time of high prices, violent crime and a confrontation with Moscow. And the polls indicate the country's going in the wrong direction. Two different speeches from the Republicans and, of course, from President Biden during his State of the Union. We bring in now our CBS News political analyst, Leonard Steinhorn. You've heard both speeches, both given tonight. What are your thoughts? Well, Steve, look, these two dueling narratives pretty much sum up the state of our country right now because we are a polarized country that's seeing the world in completely different ways. What Kim Reynolds, the Iowa governor, the Republican response wanted to project was Joe Biden is basically the new Jimmy Carter. What Joe Biden wanted to channel was the energy and optimism of uh, his uh, president when he was vice president, Barack Obama. What Kim Reynolds wanted to say is that uh, liberal elites and the media and government are looking down on people, causing inflation, creating sort of political correctness and forcing people to do things against their will. What Joe Biden wanted to say is that government can empower people. It can help people in terms of their health care. It can help the economy. It can help uh, in terms of crime. It can help in terms of voting. It will do a lot of things with the border for veterans, for democracy and climate change. For Joe Biden, the government is a, is a force for agency. For Kim Reynolds and the Republicans, it's something that's on the shoulders of the American people. You basically have dueling narratives defining our politics these days, and those two speeches pretty much sum it up. And in large measure, Lenny, it's a setup for the midterm elections. Uh, you either buy into one agenda and one way of thinking or the other. 
Absolutely. And look, the Republicans, it's always easier when you're the party attacking the person in charge. So what they're trying to define Joe Biden is as weak and reactive, that there's a leadership vacuum in our country, that they're pretty much arguing that his foreign policy, what he did in Afghanistan, pretty much emboldened Vladimir Putin and the Russians to do what they're doing in Ukraine. So that's what how they're trying to define the Democrats and Joe Biden. What the Democrats have to do is take the big lessons out of Joe Biden's speech and show that they can restore confidence in government's ability to serve the people and make a difference on the issues that are important to us, the kitchen table issues, the cost of gas, the cost of food, whether we're worried about crime in our streets, how our health care is serving us, um, whether our bridges and roads are doing the things we need to do in the 21st century. They have to make the case that they are making a difference in people's lives. It can't be conceptual. It can't be abstract. It has to be real. It has to be tangible. Joe Biden made a good effort tonight. But the question is how the Democrats and whether the Democrats can boil down his message and make it meaningful to the sort of average family that's going to be voting in these midterms in November of 2022. Leonard Steinhorn, thanks. Let's get back to CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. With the highlights of President Biden's State of the Union speech, look, uh, the the main thing, he talked about Ukraine, obviously, for a, a long stretch, and that was important. But he says his main goal is to bring prices down to get inflation in check. Yeah, the, the, the center of the president's speech, he opened with Ukraine, then talked a great deal about the economic situation of the country before moving on to the pandemic. The president essentially wanted to communicate to Americans that he understands that they're feeling the crunch and the stress of the rising prices of food, gas, housing, and other things. He says his top priority is getting prices under control, and he says, quote, I get it. He uh, says the solution is to keep costs down. And in doing uh, to do that, he would uh, say that Congress has to pass his legislative agenda, uh, lower the cost of prescription drugs, lower the cost of child care by shifting those costs essentially to, to, to taxpayers. Uh, the president tomorrow is going to be traveling to Wisconsin, a campus of the University of Wisconsin in the, the city of Superior. And he and the first lady are going to be both delivering remarks on uh, the, the theme is called Building a Better America. The White House says he's also going to talk about how the bipartisan infrastructure law will deliver for the American people by rebuilding roads and bridges, creating good-paying union jobs. The president didn't use the phrase build back better in his State of the Union address, but he is talking about building a better America. So if there's any kind of rebrand, that might be one element of it. The president also talked about how Americans are, in his words, tired, frustrated, and exhausted after two years of the pandemic. He urged a COVID reset. He hailed the new guidance from the CDC about masking, the emergence of new antiviral pills, the test-to-treat initiative that would allow people to go into a pharmacy, take a test, get antiviral pills right there on the spot. And he also said that more tests will soon be available for people for free on the website covidtests.gov. He suggested that Americans who've been working from home can return to the office. And then he rounded out the speech by talking about what he called a unity agenda for the nation, things that Republicans and Democrats, he believes, can agree on, among other things, overcoming the opioid epidemic in the country and finding a cure for cancer. Stephen Portnoy, thank you. Our retired CBS News White House correspondent Peter Mayer is here, too. Peter, I wonder what you're Thinking after listening to both speeches, the president of the United States and the Republican response going down different avenues with our nation's problems. 
Exactly, Steve. You know, let's put this into some uh, historic perspective. It's been a long time since we heard the term loyal opposition, especially at a time of crisis like we're going through right now. Some of us of a certain age can remember Republicans like Bob Dole and Howard Baker and Bob Michael and Democrats like George Mitchell, Mike Mansfield, Tip O'Neill. Uh, going to the White House, meeting with presidents of the opposite party to confer on strategies and responses to crises. Uh, No loyal opposition was on display tonight, especially in the uh, Republican response. The governor of Iowa called for solidarity with the brave people of Ukraine, uh, and she criticized the president's management of the crisis, saying his approach to foreign policy has been too little too late. You know, um, the way this works is Governor Reynolds was chosen to deliver the GOP response to Mr. Biden's address by Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and the House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy because of her conservative policies. And she clearly delivered for them and for the Republicans uh, in this midterm election year. And by the way, Steve, just a quick fact check here. Uh, Governor Reynolds said that the president and vice president had not ever visited the border Uh, As a matter of fact, Vice President Harris went to the U.S.-Mexico border last June. She visited a Border Patrol uh, office or Border Patrol facility and also saw uh, a port of entry down there. Peter Mayer, thanks very much. Uh, Mitch McConnell, after the speech, apparently has said that Republicans do support the broad Biden agenda when it comes to Ukraine in terms of handling Vladimir Putin, and they'll back him on that. Pam Falk, our foreign affairs analyst, certainly there's a lot to deal with when it comes to Vladimir Putin and a lot the U.S. will be called on to deal with as this humanitarian crisis explodes. Precisely. Americans were hoping that someone, the United States, is helping the Ukrainians. And President Biden said that the free world is holding Putin accountable. And then he announced $1 billion in direct aid that the United States is giving to Ukraine. And that is to meet almost 700,000 Ukrainians that have fled the country as of today, the sixth day of the invasion. So that's enormous. It's an exodus that shows no sign of slowing and is set to become the largest refugee crisis in Europe in this century. So within Ukraine, you also have people who need food and water and medicine. And the U.S. is working with U.N. agencies to meet those humanitarian needs. And the U.N. estimates 12 million people within Ukraine will need some kind of help. So in Geneva and in New York, Russian diplomats are being ostracized. And tomorrow there's a vote of the first emergency session of the General Assembly in 40 years that the U.S. ambassador, Biden's ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, has really worked hard. And this is a resolution that demands that Russia withdraw its troops. She was there in the room smiling quite broadly at the chamber at the State of the Union tonight. Now, there were other two other foreign policy issues at the at in the speech and it really was very heavy with foreign policy uh, one was that to counter the gains for russia on oil in this crisis uh, president biden said that he's working with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil um and that the us alone will re- will release 30 million barrels from the strategic 
petroleum reserve. And then the president also turned to one of his flagship issues, and that's fixing the border and immigration, and said Mexico and Guatemala are helping catch human traffickers and other countries are helping stop smuggling and hosting more refugees. So that- Pam Falk, thanks very much. Final words now. Stephen Portnoy, our White House correspondent, the road ahead when dealing with Russia. Very tricky, historic nature of it all with President Biden's speech tonight. Well, the president uh, talked about how the, the American people are, are, are standing united with the people of Ukraine. The people of Europe are standing united with the people of Ukraine. He said Putin may circle Kiev with tanks, but Putin will never gain the hearts and souls of Ukrainians. And that was a message that brought bipartisan ovation from members of both parties in the House and Senate, Steve. That's White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy, part of our team tonight covering the president's State of the Union. Dealing with COVID-19, economic turmoil, and a major showdown with Russia overseas. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.